Because I remember the 50s. She must have made 30, 40 films. Well, I'll tell you what happened. In those days, we were very, very, very busy in radio. When television came around, all of the writers and producers and directors from radio were the early pioneers of television. Like Jess Oppenheimer was the producer of Lucy. So we knew them all. We'd say, hey, how about it? He'd say, yeah, I got something coming up, available next week. So I was very, very busy in the early days of television. So we just drifted with the people that we knew and they felt comfortable with us. I'll tell you, one of the saddest days of my life was when they changed from a six-day-a-week to a five-day-a-week. The early television shows, most of them would shoot for three days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now, all of a sudden, there's a five-day week. Now, you can't do two shows a week. You can do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, the Thursday and Friday one's going to carry over to Monday. Now, you can't do Monday, Tuesday. Oh, boy, that was terrible. By June 1954, network radio drama was facing huge sponsor disinterest. Shows canceled in the first half of the year included The Quiz Kids, Dr. Christian, Front Page Farrell, Bulldog Drummond, Rocky Fortune, Ozzy and Harriet, and The Six Shooter. ABC, CBS, Mutual, and NBC reduced ad sale charges for the sixth consecutive year. It was an attempt to offset TV's broadening market share. It didn't work. For the first time in 16 years, revenue fell. The only category to see an increase in sales was local advertising, and even that rose less than 1%. In 1948, radio's top show was heard by roughly 28 million people. In 1950, by 20 million. In 1952, by 14 million. And in 1954, by 9 million. West Coast radio actors like Herb Vigran and Herb Ellis were moving to TV. But television was already going through budgetary changes. <laughs> I also think you have to remember the early days of television were half hour cowboy or sitcom. So if you had, let's say, 30 half hours of shows, let's say five shows in one night, seven days a week, it's 35 shows, okay? Ultimately, they started the live... Playhouse 90s, and so they found the hour format. And so we're talking about now actors and craft, guild people, where there used to be all of these different crews working on all these half-hour shows, all of a sudden, one whole crew and one whole bunch of actors cut disappeared, in cut in half, and then ultimately hour and a half. And then huge sales of motion pictures to television, and you cut those hour and a halves by Boku, and you had nothing. From 1959 to 1966 or seven or eight, there was a tremendous unemployment. I remember sitting at the Brown Derby with McDonald Carey. We had done a Jason, and uh, Ricardo Montalban came by and sat down. And they were talking about how they were being asked to take a cut. This is about 
two or three, that they were being asked to take a cut. The producers already started to cut down on the wage scale. And the scale that Ricardo Montalban was being asked to work for was a scale that I had finally worked myself up to. And I said, holy cow, if, he's, if McDonald Carey and Ricardo Montalban are going to be asked to work for that kind of money, where do I have to go back to the $65 a day well, minimum? And it, boy, it happened. They just went right down the toilet. What I mean, happened is that they used to call these little bits that we played, like uh, that went for a day or two or were two, three, four pages, they called them cameos and they'd give them to a star. By the summer of 1954, more than 60% of U.S. homes had a TV set. I Love Lucy pulled a rating of nearly 60. Radio's top show, People Are Funny, had a rating of 8.4. Along with oncoming transistor sets, nearly 30 million cars now had radios, but there was still no system to measure this audience. The next year, it was estimated that out-of-home listening added an additional 40% to at-home audiences. People Are Funny's actual rating was closer to 12. But these incidentals didn't matter to the industry's character actors. Network production habits were changing. More and more documentaries and news were airing from New York. More and more drama was airing from Los Angeles. And they'd give the star like a top salary of a thousand dollars. And you know, we finally worked our way up to Two, three, yeah. four, five hundred dollars a yeah. day. You know, how many days do you work? You don't so work they could put many. the star's name on the marquee. There's one other thing to answer your question, too. As I said, I was so busy when television started. But suddenly, there was so much television going on out here that the actors in New York started swarming oh. out here. Well, now, okay. when the actors swarmed out here, the directors followed. And when all the directors came out here, they started using the New York actors had been. Their friends that they were familiar and with the, and comfortable the guys with. who had been doing a lot of television, like me, suddenly, it ain't there anymore. Well, yeah. It was a very dry period That's that right. Herb's talking about. Very dry. It was tough. Yeah. I was lucky to have found cocaine and marijuana, and I was... <laughs> Things would be tougher by the end of the decade, but we're not there yet. Tonight, we'll head into June of 1954 as network radio reaches a point of no return. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 128. My name is James Scully. Tonight we wrap up our six-month look at 1954 by ending in June with network cancellations. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. There's no opening song tonight in honor of the men and women who couldn't make the transition to TV. Production crews were squeezed out, writers didn't make the cut, and actors just weren't pretty enough for the new medium. Along with the added red scare, many never found the soft landing. 
Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Speaking of our president, Frank Nelson, who was president of AFTRA, is, I don't know, he's been here, of course. And he is conservative, to say the least. He is not what I would call a reactionary Republican, but he is a conservative Republican, fiscally and every other. I sat next to Frank when our president, in a debate, called Frank Nelson a communist because he said that SAG's uh, medical was better than AFTRA's and Frank tried to point out to him at the time that AFTRA had a better medical plan. As a matter of fact, SAG didn't have didn't any. Didn't have one. And I, now we used to play baseball in North Hollywood Park. Gil Stratton, Herb Mention, Hal March, Jaime Del Valle, who was a producer, Virginia Gregg, High Averback, Sweeney. Bob Sweeney. Bob Sweeney. And um, Frank Nelson played, and that day I said, well, Frank, what do you think? I said, if the revolution is going to come with you as a communist, I said, I guess I'm going to go with you. <laughs> he was flabbergasted, didn't know where to go, having been called a communist. And strangely enough, it came at the time when McCarthy started this kind of thing, and people were able to... They came up with, what was it, Red Channels? And they would indiscriminately put a guy's name in, and if they didn't like him, and he was a commie and could not work. It was really a sad thing, because there were guys that were not, they may have voted, I guess, or had been at a meeting for Henry Wallace. If that was a commie, I don't know. But they just got blackballed. So I said, Frank, if the revolution comes, if you lead it, I'm going with you. <laughs> but he said, me, a communist? Oh, my God. Good evening from Washington. The McCarthy Army investigation here in the Capitol hit today a new high, or a new low, for bitter personal invective. Senator McCarthy clashed with Army Counsel Joseph Welch. Senator McClellan struck fire with Senator McCarthy. McCarthy counterattacked against Senator Ralph Flanders. And as the day ended, McCarthy held the floor in the Senate caucus room on Capitol Hill demanding that all principals in this case submit to lie detectors. This after Welch had expressed what he called serious suspicions that certain documents produced by the senator from Wisconsin were phony. Well, again today on the 24th day of the hearing... As June got underway, the Army McCarthy hearings dragged on. Richard Harkness from Washington reporting the highlights. This early focus was on the continued testimony from McCarthy attorney Roy Cohn, cross-examined by Ray Jenkins. Was on the stand. Ray H. Jenkins was asking the questions. Mr. Jenkins went directly to one of the Army charges that Cohn threatened to get Secretary of the Army Stevens. You will recall, Mr. Cohn, that he testified that you said that if Cheyenne went overseas, Stevens was through as Secretary I of the Army. I heard him say that, sir. Did you not? No, sir. 
Did you say anything like that, Mr. Cohn? No, sir, and I've talked to my recollection is I did not, and I've talked to Mr. Carr, who was sitting there the whole time, and he says I did not. Then you say that such a statement on the part of Mr. Adams is purely a figment of his imagination or has no foundation whatever in fact? I would say, sir, he is mistaken. He's mistaken? Yes, sir. And when he swears, as uh, is reflected on page 2606, as follows, yes, sir, that is right. I asked him what would happen if Shine got overseas duty. He responded with vigor and force. Stevens is through as secretary of the army. You say that didn't happen, Mr. Cohn? I say I have no recollection of having said that. I've checked with Mr. Carr, who is sitting right there, and he says I did not say it, sir. Well, now, Mr. Cohn, I'm not asking you what somebody else said uh, that you did or did not say. As I understood you a moment ago, you said that did not happen? Yes, sir. And as I understood your last response to my question, you said you have no recollection of that happening. I, said, I don't recall that having been happened. I don't remember saying that, and I have checked with the only other person in this world who was there, and he says that likewise he does not remember it being said and does not remember it having happened. As we get it then, Mr. Cohn, you're not here denying it of your own knowledge. Sir, I can come pretty close to that. I know, but uh, that pretty close is a relative term. Well, sometimes an inch means a whole lot and... Sure. And sometimes uh, several feet mean nothing. Sure. Uh, but uh, now, uh, as I get your testimony, you neither admit nor deny saying that Stevens is through as secretary of the army if this boy Shine has overseas duty. Is no, that sir. right now, Mr. Cole? No, sir. I think I've gone much further than that. I've given it to you, sir, as my best recollection, and my recollection is a fairly good one, that I did not make those statements. I've told you I've checked with the only other person on this earth who was there, but he says I did not make those statements, sir. And I can tell you under my oath here that I never... I never threatened to wreck the army, that I'm sure Mr. Adams never believed for two seconds that I threatened to wreck the army, that I'm sure he knows I could not wreck the army, that the whole thing is just a little bit ridiculous. After lunch, Vermont Republican Senator Ralph Flanders compared McCarthy, his own party mate, to Adolf Hitler. He accused him of axe-happy attempts to divide the country and split the Republican Party. He also compared McCarthy to Dennis the Menace. Flanders speculated that if McCarthy were a double agent for the communists, he'd been doing a perfect job. Later on, McCarthy accused Flanders of being a senile racist, religious bigot. That calm was soon broken. Jenkins called on Cohn to produce certain McCarthy committee documents, memos and reports they were, to show exactly how much work G. David Shine did on subversion when he had those passes from the army. Now, Cohn produced the material, a whole cardboard box full. Senator McCarthy broke in. He called for the right to examine the papers and thus drew prompt reaction from Senator John McClellan, Democrat of Arkansas. We now hear McCarthy, then McClellan, with unhappy Chairman Carl Munt, trying to get his word in. Mr. Chairman. Senator McCarthy. We have, as the chair can see, a huge box full of material. I am reasonably certain that by 2 o'clock uh, we will be able to handle this matter satisfactorily. I do want to talk to Mr. Carr, to Mr. Cohen, find out what we have here. 
I told the chair I'd give him all the material minus the names of informants, and uh, it's impossible for me to look at that box of material and know whether or not there are the names of informants in it. I would. I have, I have told. I have told my informants time and time again over the air that they, their names would not go to anyone who would try to punish them, try to get their jobs. That's still my position. The chair has not asked for the names of informants. I hope that we can go through that. And uh, perhaps with Mr. Jenkins, we can staff and decide what is material, what is not. I hope we can answer that by two o'clock. Sir, I'd be very happy if Mr. Jenkins would work with us on it. Uh, Senator McClellan. Mr. Chairman, I am not concerned about the Senator having time to go through the files so that he'll know what is being presented, or what is being filed or placed, made available to this committee. If he doesn't know and wants time, that's certainly all right. But I do want this, I want this understood, that anything filed before this committee, anything presented in response to this request or subpoena, whatever it is, this senator is going to look at it if he wants to. I don't want any misunderstanding about that. I say that to you, I mean what I'm saying, I want you to understand it. Now I want to know when it's filed and when it's not. When it's filed, it's going before this committee as a part of the record of this committee, and this senator is going to see it. Now if it's not filed, that's a different matter. But it, whenever it goes into the custody of this committee, this senator is going to look at it if he wants to, and I'm not going to ask the chair, the the chair, whether I can or not. May the chair say that the chair has the floor, then I'll call the chair has the floor. May the chair say that any material received in evidence before this committee is received by the committee and is available to the committee members and to the staff of the committee. I don't know anything about what's in that box. I know what we asked for. Whatever we get is available, Senator McClellan. Uh, to all of the Republicans and all of the Democrats and all of the members of our committee staff, of whom there are five. May I say to the Senator chairman? McCarthy. The chairman is speaking now as chairman of the special committee, and uh, he certainly has a right to. Uh, may I say, speaking as chairman of the investigating committee, that the senator from Arkansas will not get the names of any confidential informants that I have. This is especially true in view of the fact that since the senator came back on the committee, came back on six days after the Mr. Adams, Mr. Stevens contacted him, uh, he hasn't taken the stand to tell us why he came back, what that conversation was, that's his business, we can't subpoena him to do it. He has made it very clear, however, Senator Arkansas has, that he feels that those individuals who give me information about communists, about traitors, that they should be prosecuted. He's made speeches demanding that they be prosecuted. I want to tell the Senator from Arkansas, in all honesty now, that he will not get the names of any individuals who give me information about graft, corruption, communism, unless and until he assures me that those names will not be used. Let me make this clear that as far as I am concerned, I don't make memoranda, I don't put those names in the files. I'm very careful not to do that because I've been worried about the sort of thing, Senator McClellan, that I've seen here the past few days. I was frankly worried when my three Democrat friends came back on the committee about whether they were coming back to help us dig out graft, corruption, communism, 
or whether they were coming back upon the request of Mr. Adams and Mr. Stevens. I still don't know. I still don't know, but I want to say very clearly, the senator from Arkansas will never get the name of anyone who confidentially and in secrecy gives me information about dishonesty, graft, corruption, treason in this government. So that's absolutely clear. Can I say to the senator from Wisconsin, I have never asked him for such names. His implication is false. Secondly, it's false when you imply by any language that you may have used here now and when I was absent from this committee that I wanted the name of informants to make public. No, everything sort of just dissolved, just vanished. There was no way that I could have continued on because radio was killed by the business. My CBS killed its own child. NBC killed its own child. They all said, we're not going to have radio drama anymore because it is not paying off. In a very conscious way, all radio shows were canceled. They went or, to music, they went to talk shows or whatever it was, yeah. Talk shows? A pox on those. One interesting sidelight that Mr. Daner mentioned to me off the air was that he was at KMPC with the man who starred in Gunsmoke, William Conrad. They both worked oh, yeah. at KMPC back, back in the 40s. 42, 43. Wow. Bill was, uh, uh, he read poetry. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that, oh, with yeah. that voice, that oh, he would yes, be fantastic. Yeah. I bet he would have been. Yeah. I bet he was. Another great radio voice. Oh, we were, oh, gee, we were so innocent. We thought we were so great. As escape and shows like it were canceled, there were fewer opportunities for radio's West Coast actors on network-sustained programs. This episode, An Ordinary Man, was written by Kathleen Height. It starred John Daner and Virginia Gregg. Tony Barrett, Edgar Barrier, and Harry Bartell supported. It aired on June 3, 1954. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. Escape, transcribed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. running through the alleys of a Mediterranean village, the blackness of the Italian night confusing you, while somewhere in the dark behind you, coming closer as they search for you, are a man and a beautiful woman who mean to take your life. 
Listen now as Escape brings you Kathleen Height's story, An Ordinary Man. I don't know yet why I said it. But later, as I stood at the deck rail and felt the light chill of the Mediterranean night, I decided it was a good thing. I was 40 years old. In all my 40 years, people had never looked at me the way they had in the salon a few minutes earlier. 40 years. That's a long time to go unnoticed. A long time to be just an ordinary man. I had never known a beautiful woman, and Maria Novella was beautiful. A man doesn't tell such a woman that he's an assistant county assessor or that this Mediterranean cruise took his life savings. It was late. I was alone on deck. And for the first time in my life, I felt that I could be anything I wanted to be. Ah, boy, oh boy. Hello. So this is where you came to hide, Senor Hanson. Oh, Miss Novella. No, I just thought it was stuffy in the dining room, came out on deck to take the air. You are very gallant, Senor. I too found Senorita Thurston's little game very trying. Oh? Well, it, it wasn't the game so much. As a matter of fact, I get sort of a kick out of guessing who people are or what they do and then... Finding out whether I'm right or wrong. People can be very deceptive. <laughs> you must have discovered that. So often, they're not what they seem. Is that not so? Oh, I don't know. I don't get fooled very often. If you're a good judge of character, and uh, I fancy that I am. Oh, I'm sure that you are. Well, <laughs> thanks very much. Not at all. It is a quality I admire. I am so often wrong about people. I was completely wrong about you. <laughs> yes, I guess I had you fooled all right. Your work must be fascinating. Oh, it's, it's a job. But importing rare gems, it has the sound of many things. Romance, in its true sense... And history. And I should think danger. Oh, I suppose, but as I say, it, it's a job. Even scouting around the world in search of perfect stones, well, it all becomes routine after a while. I think you are modest, Senor Hensel. I think you know a very great deal that you do not say. <laughs> and I think I will go right on regarding your life as romantic. And dangerous. Well, if it makes you happy. It does. <laughs> you see, senor? You prove my point. Oh, how is that? That people are so often not what they seem. Here you are, an importer of rare gems. And you have the appearance of just an ordinary man. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's getting chilly. I'm afraid I must go in now. Oh, so soon? I mean, 
Well, if you're chilly, I could uh, lend you my coat. It is also quite late. Oh. Well, then, may I see you to your cabin? How very nice. We seem to be very much alone. Yes. Not a very lively group aboard, I'd say. And I had thought not a very interesting group until tonight. Oh, <laughs> yes, I guess you're right. Here we are. Here? Well, we're practically neighbors. I'm just a few doors down on the other side. I know. Oh, oh, you do? Do you mind that I noticed you? Now then, I'll bet you know I don't mind the least bit. I hope not. Sometimes, Senor Hansel, a woman traveling alone, she's afraid just of being alone, she's afraid. Why, now, there's nothing to be afraid of. A small cruise boat like this, not very many people. Oh, I should not trouble you. I talk too much. Oh, you just go right ahead. Why, you're trembling, Miss Novella. I, I'm a foolish woman. I will say good night now, senor. And thank you for being so kind. Are you sure you're all right? Now, if you'd like me to stay with you a while, no, I'd be... No, no, please, you must go. And forget what I have said. Oh, oh, oh. oh. I'm sorry, signorina. It's only Pietro, Mr. Bella. I see. I, uh, I do not mean to frighten the signorina. What were you doing in my cabin? I bring the signorina fresh linens. Eh? <laughs> it's enough crime, fresh linens. So late at night, you bring me the linens? Yes, it is late, Pietro. Uh, Pietro has much work in so many cabins. The signorina was not in... <laughs> I did not think that she would mind. Go now, Pietro. This must not happen again. As you wish. <laughs> Pietro would never frighten the signorina. Are you afraid of him, really? I do not know. I'm afraid of many things. Because if you're afraid of Pietro, it's a simple matter to tell the captain. You know. I would not want that. Look, uh, if it would make you feel better, I'd be glad to come into your cabin with you. Oh, uh, just to look around. Be sure that everything is all right. No. Oh, thank you, but no. I've talked too much. You will please go now, too. I... I'd like to help you, Miss Novella. Not now. We will meet tomorrow. Perhaps then you can help me. My mind was full of Maria Novella, and I didn't sleep very well that night. A beautiful woman was afraid, and she had brought her fears to me. Or rather, she brought them to the man she thought I was. A man whose business was danger and romance, a dealer in rare gems. I knew that night that I would never tell her the truth, that I must somehow come to be this man she thought I was. Your move, Hensel. Huh? Oh, yeah, yes, it is. I'm sorry, Mr. Brilliant. My mind hasn't been on my checkers all afternoon. You would think we were playing chess for great stakes the way you study your moves. I'm not even thinking about them, Mr. Brilliant. I'll concede the game to you. And I will accept, if only because it will be the first game I have won from you in three days. <laughs> you sure you don't mind? Oh, not at all, my friend. Tell me... Have you business in Trapani? Hmm? 
I asked if you had business in Trapani. We dock in Sicily tonight, you know. No, no, uh, no, this is just a pleasure trip. Oh, that is good. Then you will be able to spend some time with me. Yes, I'd like that. I didn't realize that Trapani was your home. It isn't, but I have many friends there. A particular friend occupies one of the fine old Baroque palaces. He has an exceptional collection of jewels. Oh, so? The man with your knowledge of gems... But you are not listening, are you, Hensel? Hmm? Oh, <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, I was looking for someone. Really? Uh, I guess it's obvious, uh, but I haven't seen her all day. Do I know her? Oh, Miss Novella? I, I don't place the name, should I? Oh, yes. Uh, last night in the salon, remember when Miss Thurston organized her Guess Who game? Miss Novella was the beautiful dark woman in, in green. Oh, yes, I do remember her now. Very lovely. But I don't believe I've seen her today either. And I, I'm sort of concerned about her. Wrapped at her cabin a time or two, she didn't answer. I... I think I'll check again. I believe I would, if you are worried about her. Yes, I I think I'd better. Excuse me? Oh, and thanks for the game, Mr. Brilliant. I'll see you when we dock, Hensel. Oh, yes, 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 of course. Uh. <gasps> oh, my, my goodness. Oh, sorry, oh. Mr. Hensel. Didn't see you. Are you hurt? No, 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 Miss Thurston, I'm... I blew my whistle, but I guess you didn't hear it in time. Well, I, I guess not. <laughs> Doing wind sprints around the deck, getting my land legs in shape. Oh? Start my gym classes every day with wind sprints. Well, don't let me keep you. And remember, we're all playing indications tonight in the salon before we dock. Oh. Oh, oh. Uh, hello, Signor Hansen. You were putting fresh linens in my cabin, Pietro? <laughs> fresh water, Signor. They keep you pretty busy with linens and water, don't they? <laughs> Pietro has much work. <laughs> so many cabins. Eh? I hope I find everything in its place, Pietro. I hope so too, Signor. It's Mr. Hensel. I was wondering if, if... Oh, hello there. Please come in, Senor Hensel. Well, if you're sure you don't mind. I, well, if, frankly, I've been worried about you, Miss Novella. I did not sleep well last night. Toward morning, I took a sedative. I wakened only a short time ago. I was going to send for you. I, is something wrong? I told you I might need your help. This is why I'm frightened, Signor. Oh, my. What a beautiful brooch. The last of my family's treasure, Signor. Mm -hmm. How old it is, I do not know. My grandmother left it to me. I've just come from her funeral in Lisbon. Uh, you say this is why you're frightened? I am a woman alone. Someone may know I have a brooch of great value. Pietro? Perhaps Pietro. I do not know. Miss Novella, why don't you go to the captain? I'm sure he could offer protection until you're ashore. No. I will not call attention to myself by going to the captain. 
If you will not help me, then... No, but how can I be of help to you? You are used to these things, senor. You often carry gems, do you not? Oh, no. Oh, well, of course, uh, yes, but I don't see... I know I can trust you. Take it, please. Uh, Take it? Keep it for me. Only until we dock a traponi. I will feel so much better, so much safer, senor. Yes, but if something should happen... Please, it will be safe with you. I do not mean to impose, but who else can I turn to? If I cannot trust you... You can trust me, Miss Novella. I'll keep it for you. Escape would be canceled on September 25th. Greg Bartell and Daner would continue to work together on shows like Yours Truly Johnny Dollar, Gunsmoke, Frontier Gentleman, and Have Gun Will Travel. I gotta get even with John Daner. We were doing a romance, just two of us. That's the name of a show. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway, the very last speech of the show was mine, and it was long. It was about a half a page. And I believe that the very last sentence was, yes, Hans, or whoever, I really do love you. Well, usually you look up and you act to the actors, but this was a long, involved thing. So I read it down to that last line, which I had memorized, And I looked up, and John Daner is standing across the microphone from me with his eyes crossed. (laughs) I'm sure everybody listening thought that was a dramatic pause I was taking. (laughs) I'll get even with him someday. I haven't managed to do it yet. For more info on John Daner's career, Tune into Breaking Walls, episode 101. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Ten million Americans bring you Frank Edwards and the news. Good evening. Quonset Point, Rhode Island. A badly burned lieutenant told investigators today that he heard shouts of warning from the catapult room 
just a few seconds before the blast that killed 102 men on the USS Bennington. As I reported to you on the night of the tragedy, the catapults on the big carrier were filled with explosive liquid, which might have been ignited by a chance spark. The British used steam catapults to launch their planes. They have no such tragedies on their carriers. Washington Special. Last night, the Secretary of Commerce had to admit that in his own words, we are in a recession. Tonight, the Labor Department discloses that it has just added 16 more major industrial cities or areas to its list of distressed communities, which now totals 123 major cities with substantial unemployment, as they say in the official statement. The Labor Department also admits that the so-called improvement in employment has not changed the unemployment picture in the nation's industrial centers. The reason the so-called improvement has not changed the picture is easy to discern. About 100,000 workers each week are dropped from the unemployment compensation rolls after having drawn all their benefits, as you knew all the time. Here are the cities and areas just added to the distress list. Utica, Rome, Schenectady, Troy, Albany, and Buffalo, New York. Erie, Pittsburgh, and Reading, Pennsylvania. Aurora and Joliet, Illinois. Evansville, Indiana. Jackson, Mississippi. Knoxville, Tennessee. St. Louis, Missouri, and Fall River, Massachusetts, all added to the distress list because of substantial unemployment. Cities moving up toward the distress list include Chicago, Grand Rapids, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Norfolk, and Portsmouth, Virginia. The actual number of unemployed in the nation is well above 5 million. Government figures will be released Monday, giving the number of jobless as less than 4 million. Piffle for the people. On June 4, 1954, at 10 p.m., the Frank Edwards News Program signed on WOR in New York. During this month, there were more than 120 major American cities with significant unemployment. The Secretary of Commerce officially announced the country was in a recession. Meanwhile, Vietnam was given technical independence within the French Union. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles felt the U.S. would have to send troops to Southeast Asia to prevent communist expansion. A man and a woman, but no effort was made, and Hoffman died in the electric chair. Winter Haven, Florida. General James Van Fleet says he does not think that American ground troops are needed to stop the communists in Asia. He thinks the job can be done by giving the materials of war to what he calls the courageous natives of Indochina. Secretary of State Dulles joined the growing list of administration officials hinting that U.S. military action in Asia might be imminent. Mr. Dulles told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today that the communists are not seeking merely Indochina, but all of Southeast Asia. There's an interesting suggestion in my mail from some newspaper men in Texas. They say, President Eisenhower's trip to Korea was designed to end a war. Why not suggest that the president now go to Indochina with the idea of keeping us out of the next war? Albany, New York. State authorities will again distribute, uh, distribute gamma globulin, although they say there is no evidence that it helps to prevent polio. Well, at any rate, if it doesn't help the fight against polio, it does help the companies that sell the compound. Another news. On June 6th, the San Francisco Chief debuted. Machinist Weekly prints some preview drawings and specifications. On June 13th, NASCAR held its first ever event in Linden, New Jersey. It was won by Al Keller. Will bear a strong resemblance to this year's Oldsmobile. That same day, the last steam locomotive ran on the main central railroad. 
with a new front-end grill somewhat like the 54 Lincoln. And on Flag Day, June 14th, the words under God were officially added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Kaisers may also include V8s in 55. For months, I've been reporting to you that the gasoline companies were trying to keep prices high by making great claims for secret ingredients, super-duper gas at super-duper prices. Business Week magazine says that the high-pressure advertising on gasoline is an attempt to wean motorists away from regular to premium gas, even though many cars perform better and more cheaply on regular gas. Marketing expert Sidney Margolius says that the gasoline companies are trying to get themselves out of one mess by getting into another. For instance, they add tetraethyl lead to both regular and premium gas to prevent the motor from pinging. They've been doing this for years. But this lead accumulates in the cylinders, mixes with carbon, then gets hot enough to fire the gasoline prematurely, causing what is known as a wild ping. Now the gasoline companies are adding other chemicals to offset the effects of the ethyl. Does it actually make the gasoline worth more to you? Or is it just another gimmick to get more money out of the nation's motorists? Mr. Margolius suggests that you make a test before you decide. Keep track of the mileage you get from a tank full of regular, then from a tank full of this super-duper stuff. After you have done that, he says, you should know whether there is enough difference in performance to justify the difference in price. Were you born and brought up in New York? Are you one of those rare people? No. No, no. The reason I asked is because you started out in radio down in New York City on the Horn and Hardett show, remember? Horn and Hardett Children's Hour. All right. I mean, let's give it its full title. Right. Otherwise, people might right. think it's some sort of an expletive. <laughs> That's right. I started on the Children's Hour, and then two weeks later, I was on Let's Pretend. I used to do Let's Pretend on Saturday mornings and the Children's Hour on Sunday mornings. And then my voice changed, <laughs> and I had to go into another line of work. There was another show which was playing, I guess, on NBC. Let's pretend it was on CBS, Little Blue Playhouse. And How did you know that? Well, I, uh, I did You did have big research. ears. Yeah. <laughs> but you weren't permitted to play on both, as I understand it, were you? Well, it would be physically impossible since they were on pretty much at the same time. Yeah. I mean, certainly rehearsed same times. Anybody that could do Let's Pretend would certainly not want to do Little Blue Playhouse. Let's Pretend was the prestigious show to do. Right. won all the awards, and it was very highly coveted. And I, to this day, I don't know how I was lucky enough to be chosen by Nala Mack that soon because I had no track record, no um, mutual friends, you know, who could say, listen, he's very good, you know. And it was purely and simply just a lucky accident. I asked for the job, and she gave it to me. No, I didn't know that it was that tough to do. I mean, I didn't know that people had... In some cases, waited two or three years just to get an audition sure. for I went up to the office at a time when people knew you're not supposed to go there, but I didn't know that. I went up and met her, and uh, I must say that for the first three years I was on the show, I was totally speechless every time she looked at me. For some reason, I was terrified of her. I cannot tell you why. She was one of the sweetest, most lovable people I ever knew. But there was a very imperious look about her or something. She had, she had a very round, feline kind of face and bulging eyes. But she was not severe in any way, except mm -hmm. that she looked severe, but she wasn't. She was very sweet and warm and a wonderful woman. 
Originally broadcast as The Adventures of Helen and Mary, radio's preeminent children's show first took to the air on September 7, 1929 over CBS. It became Let's Pretend on March 24, 1934. Hosted by Uncle Bill Adams, it was in many ways the brainchild of Nyla Mack, who penned, produced, and directed each show. Miss Mack was born in 1891 in Kansas and became an ingenue on Broadway and in vaudeville. She arrived at CBS in 1928 and in August of 1930 assumed control of the show. Mack felt the best way to tell a children's story was to let the children tell it. Acting talent could play a lead one week and a character part the next. She soon became CBS director of children's programming. One of Miss Mack's staples was her open door policy. Any child could audition. She was responsible for developing two generations of some of the best child-turned-adult acting talent in radio history, like Arnold Stang. Were you being pushed for, by, by family? No, or, or my family didn't yours. fully approve of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't even really, they didn't know, and uh, they very reluctantly gave me permission to stay in New York. My family wasn't even in New York. I had an aunt that lived in New York who I stayed with till my family moved down. But originally, when I came to New York, my family was still all up in Massachusetts. And uh, the only thing was that uh, I had to keep my grades up in school. As long as my, mm -hmm. I kept my grades up in school, I would be allowed to do this. But it was kind of like an indulgence on their part. They couldn't care less. And then nobody in my family has ever had anything to do with show business before or since. So when so did the I don't bug think bite you? Anything. Do, do, do you recall at all? Of... I guess it was a prenatal influence, yeah, something like that. Good. On the way, I thought, gee, you know, if I ever do get born, I want to be in radio. <laughs> I mean, kids run away to join a circus. I ran away to get in the radio. I mean, you can see what a strange kid I must have been. Radio Guide wrote that Miss Mack instantly knew if a child had it. If so, he or she would be given a small part and slowly work their way up into lead roles. Perhaps Newsweek said it best in 1943. Let's pretend is filled with kings and queens who ride talking horses through enchanted forests. It has maidens who must be rescued from witches, dragons, and dwarfs. Its characters travel in coaches, wear purple robes, through emerald halls into jade rooms, and drink from golden goblets. Cream of Wheat became the sponsor that year. It was a partnership that lasted until 1952. At 2 p.m. on Saturday, June 5, 1954, Let's Pretend signed on the air over CBS in New York. Hello, hello, come on, let's go, it's time for Let's Pretend. The gang's all here and standing near is Uncle Bill, your friend. The story is exciting from start right to the end. So everyone come join the fun. Come on and let's pretend. From New York City, it's radio's outstanding children's theater, Let's Pretend, created by Nyla Mack. <laughs> and here's Uncle Bill Adams to get us started on today's story, Beauty and the Beast. Hello, pretenders. Hey, have you ever been real scared to do something and then when you finally got at it, found out it wasn't so bad after all? Yeah. Yes, it often happens that way. Something that seems scary turns out to be fine, and that's just what happens in our story today. And Bob Murray, suppose you tell us how we travel to Let's Pretend and that story of Beauty and the Beast. Well, there's a beast in the story. 
Let's all travel on animals from the zoo. Well, that's a great idea. So, Sybil, will you take charge of the magic? Magical sound men? We'd like a fine parade of lions, tigers, elephants, and camels. One, two, three. And there we are. Choose your favorite seat, everybody. Get on their backs and let's go. Once upon a time, there was a rich ship owner who had two daughters. The older one, Athlinda, was proud and selfish, but the younger was sweet and kind and so lovely that everyone called her beauty. And now one day, their father lost all his riches. He and his daughters had to go live in a tiny cottage deep in the woods where nothing was easy and pleasant as it had been. But beauty was cheerful even there and sang as she worked about the cottage. I have a gold locket, a locket of gold. My prince gave it to me, my prince brave and bold. Oh, Beauty, stop singing that stupid song. Why, Ethelinda, you always used to like it. Yes, I used to, when we had gold lockets and golden rings to wear. I used to like it when we had fine gowns instead of these rags, and when we had some chance of meeting a prince one day. Oh, don't give up so easily, Ethelinda. It may still happen. Oh, look out the window. There comes Father. Oh, my goodness, at this time of day? Girls, girls, I must leave for the city at once. Will you pack me some provisions, Beauty, dear? There's a chance, just a chance of fortune. Father, what's happened? What do you mean, a chance of fortune? Well, a traveler through the forest gave me news of the city and the seaport. He said a ship called the Golden Vanity had docked last month. The Golden Vanity? But that's your ship, Father. The one we thought was shipwrecked a year ago. Oh, Father, if it's come to port at last, then we're rich again. Oh, easy, daughter, easy. We're not sure it is my ship. Or if it is, whether it brought any cargo. But if luck is with us, what shall I bring you back from the city in celebration? Oh, Father, some some silk and satin for gowns and and new slippers and new ribbons, some perfume and... Oh, enough, Ethelinda. Remember, it's only a chance. But if it is my ship, what do you want, my beauty? Oh, Father, all I want is a safe trip for you and good news in the city. And then if if you want to bring me something, well, I'd love one perfect rose, that's all. One rose? As always, you ask little for yourself, dear beauty. But one rose, I promise you, whatever kind of fortune I find. Now I must go saddle the horse and be on my way. Aye, sir. That's how it is, sir. The crew took all the cargo and made off with it. Heaven only knows where they're scattered to. And there's nothing left. Not a bowl of goods, not a two-penny nail. Hard luck, sir. Of course, if you'd been around when the ship docked... Yes, 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 I know. But uh, tell me, what of the ship itself? Where is it? The crew sold the vessel and divided the gold. The ship sailed out the next day. So my whole trip's been in vain. I'm as poor as ever. Hard luck, like I said. Well, there's no use staying here groaning. I might as well start home again with my bad news. Oh, if you're traveling, sir, you'd best be starting. Those clouds look ugly. We're in for a storm. Yes, yes, you're right. Well, thank you for your information and farewell. (laughs) 
worse every moment. <laughs> Steady, boy. Steady. A little farther. Surely we'll find some sort of shelter. <laughs> Wait. Isn't that a light glimmering through the trees? Yes. Yes, it is. Come on, please. What? Why, it must be a great castle. The light is high in the tower. And there, just ahead, a huge gate. Boy, here now. What's the matter, old Blaze? Why are you stopping and trembling? Come on now. Don't you want a dry stable and oats? Very well, then. I'll go to the gate on foot. Heaven knows what the poor horse fears that could be worse than this night. Ah, yes, yes, the gate. Here's the knocker. Ooh, the storm. Pray heaven someone answers. Good evening, sir. Good. Oh, good evening. I, 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 I'm a poor traveler lost in the storm, craving shelter. Oh, yes, indeed, sir. Enter. You're most welcome. Well, thank you. But I say it's, it's not raining in here. The moon is shining. It's, it's as mild as a summer's night. Oh, yes, sir. If you'll follow me through this garden to the castle, you'll find dinner awaiting you and every comfort for the night. But look here, is this some sort of enchantment? Flowers, birds, moonlight? Are you the master here? Oh, no, sir, no, indeed. If you'll just follow me into the castle now. Yes, but tell me, will I meet your master within the castle? I'm sorry, sir, my master sees no one. But I've been told to give you everything you desire. Here is the supper table set and waiting for you. Well, what a splendid table. Candlelight, meat, fruit, wine? Oh, yes, sir. Over there is the door to your room. When you've eaten, feel free to retire whenever you wish. If you want anything, just ring. Good night, sir. Good night. Well, this is strange indeed. But I'm weary enough to ask no questions. Dinner and then bed. That sounds fine to me. Beauty's father. Hmm? What? What? Am I waking or sleeping? A light. Let me find a candle. No. Simply listen, listen to my voice. Who Who are you? I see no one. Where are you? I am your friend. I am in the mists. I am in the wind. I am in the perfume of all flowers, but you cannot see me. What do you want? I have come to warn you. Warn me? Warn me of what? Tomorrow there will be a test. Watch what you do. If you fail, it may mean death to you and to your daughters. Oh, no, no, not that. No harm has come to my daughters. It rests with you. Remember, tomorrow the test. Now sleep and farewell, farewell. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I... Oh, I'd hoped it was my host. I'm sorry, sir. Only the master's servant, Mollybone. 
I came to see if you'd finished breakfast. Yes, yes, I have, thank you. And very excellent it was, too. And now, if you would take me to your master, I would very much like to meet him and uh, thank him for his hospitality before I leave. My master sees no one, sir, as I told you. Will you walk in the garden until your horse is saddled? Well, all right. If it's impossible to see my host, I... Well, the garden is lovely. I'll call you when your horse is ready, sir. Oh, my. How beauty would love this garden. Oh, and that reminds me. The one thing she wanted me to bring her was one perfect rose. Here are hundreds to choose from. Well, let me see. Ah, yes. Yes, here is a perfect rose. Rosy pink is beauty's own cheeks. I'll pick it. What's that? Horrible sound. What is it? How dare you pick my roses? What a hideous beast. How awful. Wasn't it enough that I gave you the freedom of my castle, fed you and sheltered you? Dreaming? I never saw a beast like this. And it talks. Who are you? What is this ghostly place? I'll show you by eating you alive. No, 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 please, please don't kill me. Let me explain why I took this one, Rose. Please, please, let me explain. What is there to explain? Well, it, it was not for myself that I wanted the Rose Beast, but for one of my daughters. One of your daughters? Yes, I I have two pretty daughters, Beast. And when I left home, I, I asked each daughter what she would have me bring back as a gift. Alas, I didn't have the good luck I hoped on my journey, so I can take Ethelinda nothing of what she asked. But Beauty, my younger daughter, asked only for a rose. And when I saw all these roses, I thought... Spare a father's life, Beast, a father who is only trying to please a loving, unselfish daughter. Very well. I will spare your life on one condition. That you go home and send me one of those daughters in your stead. What? Buy my life with one of theirs? I do not ask you to force either of them to come. Go home. See if either of your daughters is courageous enough and loves you well enough to come willingly and save your life. No. No. How, how could I ask either such a question? How could either agree to come? If neither is willing to come, you yourself must return. And if you don't... I shall come and fetch you. So, my daughters, that's the story. Now I must say goodbye and return to the beast. Goodbye? Father, what do you mean? Oh, my daughters, I only pretended to accept that creature's terrible suggestion so I could see you both once more. Now I... Keep my promise and go back to him. Oh, no, Father. If I don't, he will come after me and kill me here. But this way you walk right into his clutches. Well, if it be death either way, I would rather meet it as an honorable man, keeping my promise to return. But it isn't death either way. If one of us goes with you... But that's impossible. That, that's unthinkable. Oh, yes, it's impossible. How could either of us face that fearsome beast? Don't even suggest it, beauty. It was the rose I asked for which brought about this misfortune. Father, I'll go back with you to face the beast. No, Beauty, no, no, you haven't seen the beast. I'm not going to be afraid. This is better than seeing you go alone. Come, Father, let us be on our way. Very well, Beauty. Heaven grant that even a beast so fearsome as he is will be touched by your goodness and love. 
Heaven help us both. Unfortunately, Nyla Mack passed away from a heart attack on January 20th, 1953. But the show kept on. In its final two years, the Nyla Mack Award was given to the top players. The show would air until October 23rd, 1954. And thanks to Ms. Mack, men and women like Arnold Stang were able to have long careers. I came to New York from Chelsea, Massachusetts, but I came to New York because I didn't know that it was almost impossible to break into radio. So I had sent in a postcard asking if I could be on the show, and they sent back one of those letters, you know, very personal kind of letter, Dear Sir or Madam, as the case may be, you know, next time you're in New York, I was nine, but the next time you're in New York, uh, if you come by, we will schedule an interview and an audition. So, of course, the following Saturday, I went to New York and, and took an audition. I was going to be a very serious, dramatic actor, and they decided they found a new comedy personality. So they offered me a job, and I took it. And then other things came up, and I started doing things like Aunt Jenny's True Life stories and whatever shows uh, they needed kids on. And I was doing all of them, and I went on Broadway. And, play the lead in a Broadway play out of which I got a picture contract and went to pictures and started doing movies and radio in California. And that's the story of my life. Herb mentioned Elliot Lewis and Silver Screen. There used to be Lux and a Screen Guild Playhouse. I don't know if I can repeat the line, but Elliot Lewis had a great line <laughs> to uh, Loretta Young. To Lorene. Lorene talking Tyler? about one of the. Uh, yeah. I'll be up to, for your answer in the morning. That's right. I'll be up for your answer in the morning. I'm not going to repeat what came out. <laughs> what do you think about I'll it? I'll be up your. <laughs> and with that, it was looking at the page. Looking at himself, looking at everybody and saying, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. All the way back to a seat. Virginia Gregg, who you've, you've met, she had the marvelous line of Tinger Frigger. Um, do you remember that? No. Ting, her, my trigger finger was itchy and her Tinger Frigger didn't work. <laughs> How busy were you at your busiest, as far as being... I you, think you I had counted one mix. week, I did 20 shows mm. in one capacity or another. I was finally, in the late 50s, or middle 50s, I guess, involved in the production, direction, acting, whatever, on five weekly series. My desk at CBS looked like a joke. I was doing the Harris Show as an actor. I was producing and directing suspense, producing, directing, editing, writing openings and closings, and co-starring in On Stage, producing and directing Broadway's My Beat, and I was producing, directing, and writing the openings and closings and editing Crime Classics. And at one point, CBS had three of those shows on back-to-back -back on Wednesday night. And by taping parts of 
this one and sections of that one because you couldn't record the music. Music had to be live and had to be put in when you went on the air. And having adjoining studios, I was able to do it. I was on the air. I had a show on the air from 5.30 to 6. And I had a show on the air from 6 to 6.30. And I had a show on the air from 6.30 to 7. I mean, network feed. It was Elliot Lewis night on CBS. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, there's no reason for that. It was just silly, but that's just the way the scheduling happened. By June of 1954, the 36-year-old Elliot Lewis was producer-director of four shows and the star of two. His peers affectionately dubbed him Mr. Radio. Perhaps most prominently, he'd been the producer and director of Suspense since the fall of 1950. To me, acting is kind of dull, and so I wanted to go and do the other things. And Bill Spear, who was producing and directing Suspense and was, to my mind, probably the greatest of... I wrote scripts for him, and then he had me editing scripts all this while I was acting. And then uh, we got very close. We had a good relationship. And he wasn't well for a while, and he asked if I would produce and direct suspense for him. And I did some. Then he had to go to Europe to do a picture with June and the Masons. James and Pamela were married at that time. And Pamela had written a book, done the adaptation, and James and June were going to co-star, and Bill was going to produce and direct it. And that meant that he'd have to give up suspense. And he, in a very dramatic scene, handed me the torch and said, you go do this, I'm going to go do pictures. And I said, fine, off you go. And he said, and also take care of Howard and Sam Spade for me while I'm gone. Program sponsor Autolite preferred to keep its commercials humorous, feeling that the change of pace shocked the audience to attention. Each 30-minute episode required over 500 total hours of work from 50 people. With Lewis at the helm, Suspense was able to stave off some of the decline in ratings other shows succumbed to. This was partly due to his partnership with Morton Fine and David Freakin. Now, Elliot Lewis, you said towards the end, the three of you could do no wrong. What are some of those shows that you did no wrong for, including Suspense, of course? We did, well, I'm going to talk about that for a minute, because we did musicals on Suspense. Yes, you did. Did you write Frankie and Johnny? Did, indeed. With Dennis Shore? Did indeed. Okay. And then we did Black is the Color mm-hmm. with Jeff Chandler. We did several of those. And we didn't ask anybody's permission. We just did it. You know, <laughs> what song shall we do, fellas? And we'd pick a song and we'd write a suspense. Did you border on getting into some trouble over some of those? Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Peter Lawford in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents a classic study of suspense, a new dramatization of one of the most terrifying stories ever written. Wilkie Collins' A Terribly Strange Bed. Our star, Mr. Peter Lawford. What is so wonderful as a day in June? Why, world-famous Autolite spark plugs, of course, Hap. Although the series, now airing Mondays at 8 p.m., was still heard by roughly 12.5 million people each week, at season's end, Autolite decided to discontinue their sponsorship after six years. That's why Autolite spark plugs are specified as original equipment. The last Autolite suspense episode was A Terribly Strange Bed on June 7th. Adapted by Morton Fine, the guest starred Peter Lawford as an English cop in France. 
He wins big at a gambling table, gets drunk, and ends up in a hotel room with a booby trap bed. Spark plug dealer soon. He's a specialist on spark plug cleaning and adjustment for all makes of cars. And if replacements are needed, he will install ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs, either resistor or standard type, best suited to your car and your style of driving. Remember, from bumper to tail light, you're always right with Autolite. And now, Autolite presents Mr. Peter Lawford in Wilkie Collins' story, A Terribly Strange Bed, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. Shortly after my education at college was finished, I happened to be staying in Paris with an English friend. We were both young men and lived, I'm afraid, rather a wild life in the city of our sojourn. And thus had probed the various refined pleasures suitable to our class and searched for others less elegant. Searched for them in the neighborhood of the Palais Royal, which lies covertly against the dark river Seine. And from each closed doorway, the small echoings of small promises. <laughs> oh, that one, Henry. That doorway there. Oh, you're drunk, Gerald. Pleasantly, exquisitely, modestly, delicately am I drunk. And therefore... Therefore what, Gerald? The doorway I have suggested and the word Frascati painted on it. Noble word, noble mysteries. I've been there. Oh, sly, sly, sly and traitorous friend. You have been there, and alone, slyly and without me. And it has a ghastly kind of respectability. Five-franc respectability, and it, it would, would not, not amuse, amuse me. me. Come along, Gerald. Come along, Gerald. Hmm. That's it, Gerald. You're coming along very nicely. What I want, Gerald... Oh, what you want, Henry. Want and you shall find... Want and you shall find... What I want is somewhere where we can see a little genuine blackguard, poverty-stricken gaming with no false gingerbread glitter thrown all over it. No gingerbread for my friend. Thank you, friend. A place not fashionable, not respectable. A place of evil, perhaps. And of emotions I've never known. Oh, Gerald, come along. Gerald will not come along. Gerald is content here. Listen to me. Gerald is content here to lean his weariness and his search against this doorway. Against... Gerald! <laughs> the door had flung open behind him, and Gerald had fallen flat on his back. And for a while laughed, then with my help got up. And Gerald laughed no longer. For the room, the gaming room, was tragedy. Mute, weird tragedy. And the quiet in the room, horrible. And the people of the room, a thin, haggard, long-haired young man whose sunken eyes fiercely watched the turning up of the cards and never spoke. The flabby, fat-faced, perspiring player who registered on a pasteboard how often black one and how often red and never spoke. The dirty, wrinkled old man with the vulture eyes and the darn greatcoat who had lost his last sou and still looked on desperately and never spoke. The voice of the croupier. Red and black, make your bet. Red and black, The voice of the croupier, dull and thick in the atmosphere of the room. We had entered on a laugh, but the spectacle before us was something to weep over. I'd found it. The pleasure I searched, I'd found it. Henry. Yes? Your eyes. The look in them... Yes. <laughs> what you wanted, isn't it? The place of evil and of emotions you'd never... I want to play. Of course you do. Come, then. Red and black, make your bets. 
Red and black, your bets. Red and black, your bets. A thousand francs on black. Black, black wins. Leave it. All of it, black. Henry. Shh, wait. Black. Black wins. Leave it. All of it, black. Henry. Yes. This a passion for you. No, no, not a passion. Idle amusement. Yes, only amusement. Wait. Black. All of it. All of it red. This time, red. Oh, not passion, then. Intoxication, perhaps. Hmm? Yes, intoxication. As I have never known it, intoxication. Yes. 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 Which has become... Red. Red wins. All of it, red. And 10,000 more. Oh, which has become passion. Which has become passion. Red. Red wins. Now... The black croupier. Black. Oh, permit me, sir. <laughs> permit me to restore to their proper place the two coins which were dropped. <laughs> there, in their proper place, a thousand francs. <laughs> A tall man, and quite fat, pinched into a frogged and braided surto. A man of goggling, bloodshot eyes, mangy moustaches, and a broken nose. And the dirtiest pair of hands I ever saw. Yet in the mad excitement, his look, his hands, held no repelling influence on me. For now in the mad excitement, in the reckless triumph, I was ready to accept even such as he. What wonderful luck is yours, sir. I pledge you my word of honor as an old soldier in the course of my long experience in this sort of thing. Never, but never have I seen such luck as yours. Thank you. Go on, sir. Boldly, handsomely, break the bank. I assure you, sir, I have every intention... Do it then, sir. Go on, break the bank. <laughs> my gallant English comrade, boldly, break the bank. All of it. Black. And I did go on. Went on at such a rate that in an hour... Gentlemen, the bank has discontinued for tonight. In an hour, in an hour of a kind of ecstasy I'd never known, all the notes and all the gold in the bank now lay in a heap under my hands. The whole floating capital of the gambling house under my hands, waiting to pour into my pockets. No. No. No? Uh, no, not in your pockets, sir. Uh, for no breeches pockets were ever sold could hold such heavy winnings. Well, then how... Uh, may I take your pocket handkerchief, sir? Uh, thank you. Uh, tie it up, sir. Tie it up in your handkerchief, as we used to tie up a bit of dinner in the army. <laughs> uh, shovel it in. Uh, now then, sir. Two tight double knots each way, with your permission. Uh, and the money's safe. Thank you. Feel it, feel it, sir. Hard and round, hard and round as a cannonball. Feel it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, champagne, sir. I will buy you champagne. No, thank you. I... Well, for your friend, then. For Henry's friend, then. <laughs> Amiable, gracious Englishman. Champagne! Champagne for the friend of the conqueror of the bank. And for me. 
Come, sirs, uh, to my table. <laughs> I am Fabian Nero, gallant sir. And you? Henry Calder. And this is my friend, Gerald Titchener. Henry, Gerald, Fabian. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely. <laughs> Henry, Gerald. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Henry and Gerald. <laughs> Fabian. We are friends, aren't we? To have touched your sleeves. To have you seated here beside me. <laughs> this old soldier's heart will burst. My eyes will weep. My hands will... Ah, ah the champagne. <laughs> ah, a toast, gentlemen. A toast to... Uh, not for me, please. Oh, oh, of course not for you. Uh, Gerald and I, then. You wouldn't Gerald, Fabian. <laughs> a toast to the goddess Fortune... Who embraced tonight our Henry and smiled secretly upon him and nestled very close. The goddess fortune, gentlemen. An English cheer. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Ah. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Fabian, quickly enough. Yeah. Gerald, you were tipsy before. Now you'll... Henry, not to permit the golden blood of France to flow through the veins of this vivacious Englishman. And Gerald, your friend. Oh, shame, Henry, shame. <laughs> Drink, Gerald. A uh, toast to France, to the present company, to the croupier. And the croupier's wife. And the croupier's daughter. The uh, croupier's uh, daughter's... And to ladies elsewhere. And to ladies... I should like coffee, Fabian. Uh, coffee? Coffee. For me and for Gerald. For our intoxication... Well, is... coffee it shall be. Uh, coffee. Coffee for the darling of fortune. Coffee. The word pronounced by Fabian Nero seemed to have a magical effect on the company present. They suddenly had lost interest in and all rose to depart. Probably they had expected to profit by my intoxication, by the proffering of champagne. But finding I would have none of it, had now abandoned all hope of thriving pleasantly on my winnings. Whatever their motive might be, at any rate, they went away in a body. And the silence of before was now deeper than ever. Then, from a sort of vestibule at the far corner of the room, a woman appeared, bearing a tray of coffee and glasses, and walked towards us. Enveloped in silence. Woman of emaciated face and burning bright eyes and wisps of colorless hair drifting across her rouged cheeks. Your coffee, sir. Thank you. You will find it strong and good. Thank you. Strong and good, handsome sir. Here you are, sir. Thank you. For I am parched with thirst. And it was kind of you and of Fabian... And gracious and generous. How wise you are, Henry, to drink this coffee of Millie's, the coffee of Millie Prudhomme. Millie Prudhomme. Divine Millie. Beautiful Millie Prudhomme. Oh, mm. handsome, sir. Will you have coffee? No. Champagne, Millie. Ah, to drink your beauty. <laughs> How wiser than your friend, Gerald, to drink coffee and rid yourself of your little amiable exaltation of spirits before you think of going home. And you must, my good and gracious friend, oh, for with all that money... Good and gracious friend. With all that money to take home tonight, it is a sacred duty to yourself to have your wits about you. Drink, Henry, 
drink your coffee. You are known to be a winner to an enormous extent by several gentlemen present tonight who are but mortal men, sir, and have their own amiable weaknesses. <laughs> drink, Henry. Who'd surely rob and murder if you were to... Wait. Wait. Oh, yes, I'm ill. I'm very... What? He is ill. Very ill. I will weep. Henry is ill and I'm drunk. Millie will sob. Will you sob, Millie? Ill. A fit of giddiness. The room whirls round and round. Furiously. Henry! Your voice deafens me. Furiously! Oh, my dear friend, my dear friend. Madness to go home in your state. You would be robbed, murdered. You need a walking and then a sleep and not a murdering. A walking and then sleep and in a safe place, Henry. Yes. Yes, walk. Sleep. In a safe place. The place of Millie Prudhomme. A rooming house above the game room. And the capital beds of Millie's rooming house. I don't... Madness to go to your own home. Sleep at Millie Prudhomme's. And tomorrow, tomorrow... Go home safely with your winnings. Tomorrow, in full flow of life. And in broad daylight. Tomorrow. Gerald. Fabian's right, Henry. If anyone needs sleep, you surely need Come, then. Quickly. Come, then, quickly. I will help you. Put your arm about me. That's the dear boy. Really? <laughs> yes, Gerald. <laughs> Come. Ah, injure Henry. Here, the choicest room of Millie Prudhomme. The capital bed there. And the tasteful furnishing, and the deep sleep to be had, and the safe one. Till tomorrow, Henry. I don't know how to thank you. Oh, you have thanked me enough already with the exaltation of your splendid company. And that I could have been of some small service to your small malady. <laughs> oh, Millie. Well, let me go, Gerald. <laughs> oh, handsome, sir. <laughs> Oh, t -t 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 come, Millie. Henry wants his sleep. Oh, divine, Millie. Divine. Oh, Henry, sit. Oh, Henry. Millie Prudhomme, she... Gerald passed into his particular oblivion in the middle of a sentence. I walked over and locked the door. Then I took my money, my winnings wrapped in a handkerchief, and placed beneath the pillow of my bed. I lay down. My senses still swam, and I looked up at the heavily brocaded canopy, and it seemed to move. Somehow to move. And for an instant I thought, this was a terribly strange bed. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Peter Lawford in Wilkie Collins' A Terribly Strange Bed. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. The 
featured in this episode as the Cropier was Vic Perrin. I auditioned for uh, Charles Lawton when he was putting together his Shakespearean group, and he auditioned 1,800 people, and I was one of 30 that he picked. Lawton donated three nights a week for three years working with us, and we, he even bought a house in town with a big mm. living room uh, separate from the house and a fireplace and a bar, and we would sort of sit at his feet. <laughs> and Charles said, actors should drink together. And so... <laughs> He's at, not the first to have said that. <laughs> at, at the end of each session, his wife, yeah. Elsa Lanchester, would come in, unlock the liquor cabinet, set out one bottle of booze, and everybody would have a couple of drinks before we went home, but it made for camaraderie and friendship. And it was you were rehearsing for radio purposes, stage purposes, no, for just acting, just you know, oh, like yeah. a workshop. Yeah, situation. it was like a workshop. Um, that must have been an incredible uh, experience. And he was the hardest taskmaster you could ever ask for because yeah. you never really could please him, but you didn't want him to flatter you. So it was really fine. So when did you make the break from this is NBC, which this isn't, by the way, to acting? <laughs> 1945. Yeah. To cushion the transition, I had uh, some national commercials going, and I had to give those up with a staff job. And I had a mouth to feed and, and $40 a month to pay on the house, you That's know. That's right. We mustn't forget that. <laughs> so I taught at USC for yeah. two semesters. I taught radio history, radio production, and radio writing. There were a number of football players in my class uh, who expected A's and didn't get them. Uh -oh. And uh, I, <laughs> I only taught their two semesters. Uh, <laughs> then I began to work in a couple of soap operas. There were two coast uh, soap operas here, Dr. Paul and Aunt Mary, which were very popular. Yeah. And uh, then I got one of the leads in an ill-fated soap called The Story of Holly Sloan. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job in One Man's Family. I was in that for seven years playing Ross Farnsworth, who oh, was a, a real pill. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to get hate letters because uh, I treated Joan so badly. You because can't. my mother, I loved my mother very much, and she ran my life. But I was never really a part of the cast because the cast had been together for ten years before that. And I was mm. sort of an outsider I never really was quite part of the Barber family. After the episode climax, announcer Harlow Wilcox signed off for the 246th and final time. Suspense. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. Peter Lawford. Here are the results of the great $100,000 Autolite family charity drawing. Over 5,200,000 entries were received for this event. Last week, the final drawing was held in New York under the supervision of a distinguished committee. Here are the names in the order of their selection. $50,000 will be distributed to the charity or charities designated by Desi L. Irish of Vallejo, California. $20,000 will go to the charity or charities designated by Lucille Foisy of Miami, Florida. $5,000 to the charity designated by Vincent W. Sisler of Howe, Indiana. $3,000 to the charity designated by Stuart Smith of Ogdensburg, New York, and $2,000 to the charity designated by L.G. Bridgewater of Kennewick, Washington. These people and 20 others who will each designate $1,000 to their favorite charities have all been notified. 
And now this is Harlow Wilcox wishing you a summer of safe driving with the reminder that wherever you travel, from bumper to taillight, you're always right with Autolite. Next Tuesday night, June 15th, we will continue with a new series of suspense programs. At that time and through the summer, we hope that you will join us and that we will be able each Tuesday night to keep you in... Suspense. Suspense is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis with music composed by Lucian Morrowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. A Terribly Strange Bed was adapted for suspense by Morton Fine and David Friedkin from the story by Wilkie Collins. In tonight's story, Ben Wright was heard as Gerald, Paula Winslow as Mildred, Joseph Kearns as Fabian, and Vic Perrin as the croupier. Peter Lawford may currently be seen co-starring in the Columbia picture It Should Happen to You. And remember, suspense continues on Tuesday nights beginning next week, at which time we will present... The earth is made of glass. You can buy Autolite standard or resistor type spark plugs, Autolite stay full batteries, and Autolite original service parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is the CBS Radio Network. Elliot Lewis left the production after July 27th. Suspense would remain a sustained show until finding multiple sponsorship in late 1956. Unfortunately for Lewis, his other shows would soon be canceled. Phil Harris and Alice Faye went off the air on June 18th. Crime Classics on June 30th. Broadway's My Beat on August 1st. And On Stage on September 30th. Hello. Isn't it a lovely night? So warm for November. <laughs> Spring, really. I love walking. Oh, not so quickly, please. You take such long steps. Oh, I, I'm chilly. It's not warm at all. Oh, let's go back to my room. Uh, I'll fetch a coat or whatever. Oh, I must tell you, Martha said a thing. You know Martha. <laughs> She said you were looking at me. Oh, no, no. If we go down the alley here, we can go in the back way. Well, I'll tell you. I've been looking at you. Right down there. I've put some pictures up on my wall. Oh, you'll like them, I know. Ah, right in here. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I'll just light the lamp. Oh, oh would you... <gasps>
the seventh, the last, the greatest unsolved crime in history. The year was 1888, and it's generally considered that Jack the Ripper was a very young man, and it's thought that he ran away to America. So that spry old gentleman over there carving so deftly the roast, spooning out the kidney pie, or that one there whittling, or the one there silver-haired, a fine surgeon by day. Well, I'm just pointing out the possibility, that's all. In just a moment, Thomas Highland. Jack the Ripper, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Betty Harford was heard as Mary and D.J. Thompson as Martha. Featured in the cast were Irene Tedrow, Ben Wright, Paula Winslow, James McCallion, and Richard Peel. Roy Rowan speaking. And here again is Thomas Highland. Ladies and gentlemen, on Tuesday next, I begin a world cruise, uh, during which time I will reestablish my friendships with antiquarians, historians, and police officers throughout the world. Uh, this commitment makes it necessary for me to conclude this present series of crime classics effective with this broadcast. I hope to return in time to resume the series in the fall. Thank you, and good night. Everybody has at least one day in a lifetime like, well, like you're going to hear about tomorrow night when CBS Radio presents Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. Hollywood's acting Lewises star in a most unusual original story titled, Some Days It Just Doesn't Pay. And we think you'll find it delightful listening for a summer Thursday night. Try it and see. Tomorrow night on most of these same stations, Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. It's light entertainment, the Peter Lind Hayes Show, Monday through Friday evenings on the CBS Radio Network. I have always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair and curlers. Go. <laughs> Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about is this a good script or a bad script. And conversely, the writer who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. As the actor does while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. <laughs> well, they go, right on, baby. You're standing there with mud on your face. You know, you just made one of those big things and nothing happened. And the writer's going, oh. <laughs> 
For more info on Elliot Lewis's career, tune into Breaking Walls episode 113. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. You know the famous story that uh, George Burns did to Jack Benny? It had to do with Jeanette McDonald, did it not, Freddie? Well, I they don't know it. It's a wonderful story, and it shows you how you can psych somebody out. Apparently, uh, Jeanette McDonald and her husband threw lovely parties, but inevitably, before the evening was over, somebody would ask Jeanette McDonald to sing, which she would. And if they didn't... And if they didn't... Uh, she had somebody hired who would... Well, you know, because she wanted to sing. <laughs> so George used to say to Jack Benny, three days before the party, he'd say, Jack, when Jeanette McDonald gets up to sing at the party, don't laugh. It would be very embarrassing. <laughs> He'd call him the next day. Jack, you know, somebody's going to ask Jeanette to sing. Would be very, I would be very embarrassed if you laughed. Wow, she... Sure enough, so they're at the party and somebody says, Jeanette, would you sing a song? And Jack goes right out. It was all over. He was physically unable not to explode with laughter. I know that's true, as it sounds like George, for one he thing. Was, yeah, he was, and, yeah. and Jack also, was you could get him quicker than anybody a, who ever lived. was a great patsy for George. Oh, he was the, one of the only great comedians who really enjoyed other comedians. Right, he did. On June 6, 1954, Jack Benny closed his broadcast for the end of the season. Jack was going to headline in Dallas. The show featured a semi-rare appearance from Mary Livingston. Although radio audiences were rapidly waning, and Benny was a TV star as well, he kept his radio program going. Earlier we mentioned that out-of-home listening was adding an additional 40% to primetime radio audiences. That means Benny's 8.2-1954 rating was actually closer to 11.5. The Jack Benny Program, transcribed and presented by Lucky Strike. This is Don Wilson, friends. There in words and music is the story of Lucky's better taste. It's toasted. A Lucky tastes better simply because it's the cigarette of fine tobacco, and it's toasted to taste better. It's toasted. The famous Lucky Strike process brings Lucky's fine tobacco to its peak of flavor, tones up this light, mild, good-tasting tobacco, to make it taste even better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. That's the Lucky Strike story, pure and simple. 
Remember that, friends, the next time you buy cigarettes. And make it a carton of better-tasting Lucky Strike. Let's go out to Jack's home in Beverly Hills. Have you got everything packed, Rochester? I think so, Mr. Benny. Plenty of shirts, socks, and underwear? Uh-huh. And you know, it gets kind of hot in Texas this time of year, so I hope you pack my white formal dinner jacket. Well, you can't take that white jacket. It's got blood on it. Blood? Yeah, it hasn't been cleaned since you played at the opening of that meat market. <laughs> That's right. I did play my violin there. But wait a minute. I wasn't anywhere near the meat counter. I couldn't have gotten blood on it. Boss, that's yours. (laughs) Oh, yes, smart Alec Butcher. Thinks he's a critic. (laughs) What does he know about the violin anyway? I played very well. (laughs) What are you laughing at? That was the first time I ever saw pig's feet walk out by themselves. Oh, stop being so smart and finish my packing. Yes, sir. By the way, Rochester, there's the door. I'll get it. It'll be nice appearing in theaters again, playing to all those smiling pork chops. I mean, faces. (laughs) Got to stop working those meat markets. Coming, coming. Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Come on in. Okay. I'll leave the door open. Everybody will be dropping in to say goodbye. Say, Jack, the reason I came over a little early is that I wanted to ask you to do me a favor. Certainly. What is it? Well, you know, Dallas has one of the finest department stores in the country, Neiman Marcus. Uh-huh. And I'd like you to go over there for me. I'll be glad to. What do you want me to buy for you? Nothing. Just see if they have an opening in the stocking department. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean you can't get your old summer job back at the May Company? Yes, Jack, but I thought if I worked down in Dallas, I might meet one of those oil millionaires and marry him. Now, wait a minute, Mary. If you'd become some guy's wife just because he has money, why don't you marry me? Jack, I don't want to just look at it. I want to spend it. (laughs) Oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I hope the Texas climate (laughs) agrees with you. Say, Jack... Who's going to Texas with you? Oh, I got a great show, Mary. There's the Will Maston Trio starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Giselle McKenzie, one of the stars of the hit parade. A lot of other great acts. And after Dallas, I go to Portland, Vancouver, and Seattle. I'll be gone six weeks altogether. Gee, that's a long time. Yeah. While you're gone, will it be all right if I come over and use your swimming pool? Certainly, anytime you want. Not only that, but Rochester will be here in case you want anything to eat or drink. Good, and I'll be able to charge it now that I belong to the diner's club. <laughs> Mary, why don't you once let me make a generous gesture hey, without... anybody home? Yeah, in here, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Come here, Mary. I got a big kiss for you. Well, goodbye, Mary. Have a pleasant trip. Dennis, what's wrong with you? I'm the one who's taking the trip. I'm the one you should be saying goodbye to. Okay, but we'll just shake hands. <laughs> Of course we'll just shake hands. Whatever gave you the idea that I'd kiss you. I thought you might try to make Mary jealous. You know, Dennis, you're the only kid I know whose parents run away from home. Dennis, don't annoy him today. He's all excited about his trip to Texas. 
You know, Mary, Mr. Benny isn't the only one who's going to do personal appearances this summer. Uh, what do you mean? Well, on June 8th, I'm opening at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas. I didn't know that, Dennis. Did you make a good deal? I'll say they're paying me more money than you ever made. <laughs> Look, kid, everybody knows that Las Vegas pays entertainers a lots of money. I've had offers to go there, too. And I dare say, for more money than you'll be getting. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Mary, tell him that last offer I got from the Flamingo Hotel. 50 cents a bundle, rough dry. <laughs> rough dry, rough dry. Mary, that wasn't a bit funny. I thought it had an element of humor. <laughs> oh, you did, eh? Well, Dennis, do me a favor. And sing my song. Yes. That has an element Never of... mind, just sing the song. I remember one script where I went over to Jack Benny's house and I sang the song, which I usually had to do every week, sing the song I was going to sing on the following Sunday's program. And I went over there and I sang the song, and after I had sung it, Jack says, Dennis, that'll be fine. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Benny, and i got to go now. And he showed me to the door, and as I was about to leave, I turned and I said, goodbye, Mr. Benny, and have a nice trip. I left, of course. He went upstairs, and he was halfway through packing before he realized he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, these are the silly type of things. There was another one I remember where, in the body of the show, I had done something very frightening to Jack because he had another singer on the program, and I was very jealous, and I was mad. So what I was doing, I was hiding in the bushes in his home, at Beverly Hills, and I was throwing rocks with notes attached through the window. And he would read them, you know, and it'd say, you are next, and this type of thing. You think you can get away with it, but you can't. And all of this, well, sure enough, I was caught by the police in Beverly Hills. At the end of the show, in the tag, he calls everybody out, and he called me out for a bow, and he said to me, Dennis, what you did to me in the show tonight, frightening me the way you did, gave me an eerie feeling. And when I heard that, I said, what did you say, Mr. Benny? He says, what you did to me gave me an eerie feeling. And I said, gee, Mr. Benny, that's where I was born. He said, oh, Erie, Pennsylvania? I said, no. Feeling West Virginia. <laughs> now, that's a lousy joke, but I could get away with it. That's not really a bad character joke. character that I play. It's not that bad a joke, actually. An Irishman will steal your heart away. The German man is steady. Ach, the German man is smart. For he'll come around and around again to bring the Fraulein's heart. But you can lose him easily and make him hide his face. When he comes around to see you, tell him... This is not the blade! <laughs> an Irishman, an Irishman will steal your heart away. He'll be telling you and beguile you with his hullabaloo belay. When that rogue turns on the brogue, your heart will go astray. Oh, an Irishman, an Irishman will steal your heart away. 
Dennis, Dennis, I don't know, you drive me nuts when you speak, but when you sing, you not only have a nice voice, but you do such clever things with lyrics. You're just wasting your time with those compliments. We're still just going to shake hands. <laughs> Dennis, leave me alone, will you? I've got a pack. Okay, I'm going in the other room and listen to the radio. Good, good. Oh, Mr. Benny. Yes, Rochester. I've got everything packed, but I can't find your briefcase with all your papers and notes for your personal appearance. Well, didn't I bring it home after my last broadcast? Oh, for heaven's sake, now I remember. I left it at CBS. I better call and make sure they send it to me. CBS, the star's address. What? Well, I'll see if I can get it. Hold on, please. Who was that, Gertrude? Mr. Benny. Hey, he forgot his briefcase here, and he wants I should call the lost and found department and see if it's there. Hmm. Well, it's lucky he didn't ask me. I'm never going to do anything for him again. Gee, Mabel, I didn't know you were mad at Mr. Benny. Yeah, I had a birthday last week, and you should see the lousy present he gave me. I thought it was a nice present, a genuine alligator leather handbag. It was imitation. You, he can fool with that genuine stuff. Me, he can't. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting you used to wrestle alligators for a living. <laughs> Remember how I drove the panel nuts on What's My Line? <laughs> uh -huh. I got no grudge against Jackie. He's been very nice to me. In fact, last Friday, he called me and invited me to a masquerade party on Saturday. Did you go with him? Yeah, I went as Charlie Chaplin. I put on baggy pants and a derby and painted a mustache on me. You painted a mustache? Yeah. It's a shame he didn't let you know a little sooner. You could have grown one. <laughs> Look who's talking. Crazy Legs Mabel. <laughs> understand you. Why should you waste your time on a man like Jack Benny? Because he can do me good. He has a lot of influence in Hollywood. After all, it was him who got me the part in that movie. Some part. An octopus in the sea around us. <laughs> <laughs> You're just jealous because he happened... Hello? Gertrude, what's taking so long? I'm sorry, Mr. Benny, but I keep getting a busy signal at the Lost and Found Department. Uh, well, Gertrude, keep trying. When you get them, please ring me back. Yes, sir. Did you get it, Jack? No, the Lost and Found Department line was busy. Well, why don't you stay on the line with Gertrude till you got the number? Look, Mary, I don't want to bother her needlessly. She's got enough work. You know, she's only got two arms, you know. That's funny. I saw her in a picture and she had eight. <laughs> Just makeup. She used the same makeup man, you know, that Lon Chaney had. Hello, is anybody home? Why, Mr. Kitsop!
Mr. Kitzel, I wasn't expecting you. The door was open, so I took the liberty. Oh, I, I'm glad you found time to come over and say goodbye to me. Oh, I even brought you a little farewell present, a cake my wife baked. Here. Oh, isn't that cute, a cake? On the top it says... Bon Voyage. Uh Uh-huh, this I wrote myself. If you look at the O's in Bon Voyage, you'll see that they are bagels. (laughs) Well, I'll be darned. Thank you very much, Mr. Kitzel. You know, Mr. Kitzel, I haven't seen you for such a long time, and you look just wonderful. So healthy and tanned. Yeah, this is because of my new job. This summer, I'm a lifeguard by the beach. I didn't know that. That's surprising. I thought you knew I was a lifeguard. Didn't Dennis Day told you? No. How would Dennis Day told me? (laughs) I mean, how... How would... How would Dennis Day know that you're a lifeguard? Well, last Saturday, he came down with his mother, and they went in the water, and he started to drown. And I rescued him just when he was going down for the 16th time. (laughs) Dennis went down 16 times? Yeah. I thought a drowning person only went down three times. Not when somebody is pushing you. You mean his mother? Aha, uh-huh, with the help of two total strangers. <laughs> well, that figures. Hmm? Well, I got to be running along. I got to see my cousin who just arrived in town from the east. Your cousin? Yeah, haven't you heard? Fine gold is here. <laughs> Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own big-as-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush we call imagination. Gosh, Mary, I wish they'd call me back about that briefcase. I'm really worried about it. Was there any money in it? No, I didn't have any. Say, that reminds me. I better get some money for my trip. Excuse me, Mary, I've got to go down to my vault. Uh, uh, Say, Jack... Jack, uh, can't I go with you uh, just this once? No, I'm sorry, Mary. Not that I mind, but you might startle my guard, Ed. Oh, my telescope. Well, there was a guy who used to be president of uh, Screen Actors Screen Actors Guild. And I think he's still president of something or other. I, I don't know what. He shouldn't be. <laughs> Anyhow. <clears throat> yeah, I know you're talking about residuals, right? Anyhow, we were on strike for residuals, period. Ronnie was president of SAG. And while we were on strike, he came in with a package that he said, boy, we better grab this. We'll never get anything better than this. And Ronnie, as you may have noticed, is rather a persuasive speaker. And he's a fairly good-looking man, and he can sway an audience, and he was even better then than he is now. He pushed this thing through and talked everybody into buying this deal. And he had been negotiating with uh, Lou Wasserman, who was his agent, 
and he was under contract to General Electric as a spokesman and an ambassador at large, a PR guy. And those are the people he was negotiating for us with. Well, it, we didn't do too well. It was a pretty horrible deal. <laughs> Suffice it to say, what we got for residuals was minimal, nominal, plus which at the end of five runs, Over forget it. Up. So we've got shows running like that Hitchcock. I got I Love Lucy, well, Superman. Of, but a lot of that stuff was done in from 1950 when television, I guess, started to happen, right? 50, Lucy's, 51, 52. The Lucy's were after that residual thing. But I ran out of Lucy's a uh, hundred years was ago. Was after the residual or before? Huh? They were before residuals? No, they were after residuals. Oh. When did the good residual deal start? The good one? Just uh, last couple of years. Not, not more than uh, four or five years ago. It yeah. took all those years, because each three years that they'd negotiate, residuals and labor's increases are all based on what you got. And labor would go in like the auto workers and get a 5% raise, you know, 3% raise. Well, we'd go in and say, you want a 200, a 200% raise? The first radio commercials that I ever did I got $17 for the spot, which gave them 13 weeks unlimited use. And they ran it and ran it and ran it for $17. Now, three years later, when they go in to renegotiate it, they ask for $35, which is nothing for the exposure you get. You want a 100% raise? You know, no way. We'll give you a 5% raise. And that, that's only and for it, one time. That's it, only for reporting time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, no, the $17 was for local. Well, I don't know. If it was national, it would have been something like there was 20, another skill $23, for national. yeah. In just a moment, American Forum of the Year. But first, take a beautiful girl and a flirtatious young man, mix in some delightful music as sung by Gordon Macrae and Lucille Norman, and you have all the elements of tomorrow's Railroad Hour program. On Sunday, June 13, 1954, at 6 p.m. Eastern, the American Forum of the Air signed on with a discussion on the 1954 midterm elections. The featured senators were Republican Homer Ferguson of Michigan and Democrat Mike Maroney of Oklahoma. The two political parties had deep divides within on key issues. While many Republicans were conservative, they didn't support Joseph McCarthy's communist raids. Northern Democrats were likely to be liberal and in favor of the underway desegregation. Many Southern Dems were known as Dixiecrats and upset at the recent Brown versus Board of Ed ruling. This week, the American Forum of the Air presents a discussion of the topic, what's at stake in the fall elections? And here with us to discuss this question are Senator Homer Ferguson, Republican of Michigan, and Senator Mike Monroney, Democrat of Oklahoma. But before the debate begins, here is a message of importance. The old expression, it's a small world, has new meaning today. The world has grown even smaller. In fact, in some ways, it's too small for comfort. With modern long-range aviation, enemy planes could reach the United States from any part of the world in a matter of hours. A devastating surprise attack could occur at any time. Now, of course, our nation has taken steps to protect us. There is an extensive radar network to detect the approach of planes. But radar cannot do the entire job. That's up to us as individual citizens. And right now, the Air Defense Command needs 300,000 more volunteers for its Ground Observer Corps. This Ground Observer Corps is made up of patriotic citizens who contribute a few hours of their spare time each week. 
both men and women from teenage up can join the Ground Observer Corps and perform a valuable service to our country. Write or phone your nearest Civil Defense Center or write to Ground Observer Corps, Washington 25, D.C. Remember Pearl Harbor and join the Ground Observer Corps. The founder and moderator of the American Forum of the Year, Theodore Granick, today has asked Stephen McCormick to be guest moderator. Mr. McCormick. What is at stake in the elections this fall? A number of important subjects, no, no doubt about that. And our two guests from the Senate today are well qualified to discuss them. Let's have a question here. Mr. Carson, you have one. Yes, Senator Monroney, the president in his address to the nation this week said that the present farm policy was harmful both to the farmers and to the nation as a whole. Now, do you think that the administration's farm program is, is right for the farmer and the nation? Well, Mr. Carson, let me put it this way. I think the present farm program administered by Secretary Benson is very harmful to the farmers as a whole of this nation. But why add them future disaster by uh, lowering the support prices uh, by another 5 or 10 percent? It's been the administration of the program that has wrecked the farm economy. But now they're proposing additional disaster in cutting under the support prices that have helped us so much through the years. Senator Ferguson, you've got a real interest in this. Well, in state. Uh, I can't see it that way at all. What the uh, Mr. Benson is trying to do, and honestly doing, and which I think every man has a right to do, is to obey the law. And that's all Benson is doing. He is obeying the law, and when it says to support a particular crop at a certain price, he feels that the law requires him to do that. Now, what he wants to do, and what the president wants to do, is to change the law so that he can do it properly for both the consumer and for the farmer. Could I add one thing right well, there, though? But the law says that Mr. Benson is supposed to be the Secretary of Agriculture. He couldn't do a better job for the processors or for industry than he has been doing to encourage uh, uh, speculators to raid the farmers' prices from the very day he took office. He said he didn't like farm price supports, which was a signal to the boys on the cotton board and in the grain pit and dealing in farm commodities that they could safely undercut the farmers' prices. Well, uh, the farmer's prices can't be undercut if the farmer wants to sell to the government. That's what's wrong with the program, that the farmer can sell any amount of wheat, corn, cotton, peanuts, rice, and tobacco that he raises, and he can sell it to the government at 90% of parity. And yes, the government Mr. must buy it and put it in storage. That's what's wrong with it. He, you're talking about a different thing of on the commodity market. Oh, no, no, no. What, we, what, we try to, what we try to do, and the whole philosophy, I will say to my distinguished friend, has been to put a floor under the farm prices so that then the prices will go up from that floor. Mr. Benson, because he started from the first to condemn and to say he despised farm price supports, has caused the prices to go down to the floor, so the government's had to buy more and more commodities. Well, you know, but aren't you really advocating uh, what uh, Senator Ferguson said there? In other words, isn't it an invitation, the Democratic program, to produce all they can produce and then we'll buy it? Just, you're saying almost uh, as if you, to draw an analogy, General Motors, produce all the automobiles you can produce and all you can't sell, we'll buy it. Well, let's just look, at the, it? Let's just look at the record on Mr. Benson's uh, program. He says if you drop the support prices, the farmers will reduce their production. That's his theory. That's the whole thesis. That's Eisenhower's program to cut the surpluses. Well, he dropped the dairy price surpluses, uh, uh, supports, from 90% to 75%. The result has been the farmers have brought more milk into town. 
We're buying more pounds of butter. We're buying more dried milk. And consequently, it proves the fallacy, which many of us from the farm areas have said all along, that if the support price is down, the farmer will produce more to try and bring his income back to where it was. Well, let's see, Mr. Krebs, go ahead. Let's get back to the, the political impact of this thing. Senator Ferguson, is there any chance that the president's flexible support program will pass the Senate this time? Well, personally, I feel that it will pass the Senate. I, I certainly feel that uh, there are enough people who are concerned with this farm program that uh, the Senate will pass the bill. And I, from last night or a few nights ago, the president made a speech in relation to this farm program. And I think he's correct. When we consider this whole program, it's built around the so-called Southern votes. Why have you got peanuts in there? Why have you got tobacco? Why have you uh, uh, cotton? Because Can you get those so Southern and votes rice. for a flexible support program? Senator? Well, uh, tobacco wouldn't because that's regulated by the number of acres that they plant. But the only thing that concerns the real farmer of America is the two crops, corn and wheat. And only 10% of my state's income from farm products are on those two. So we're talking about this great program that's taking millions and actually billions of dollars for two of the main crops. The other are two on these specialized crops. We have that is a number of we have a number of you subjects must have more subjects here. I'm sure sure in a, a very short time to do it. Mr. Scanlon. Uh, I suppose this question, more properly, should be addressed to Senator Ferguson. But since, uh, since it is uh, a subject that uh, has been a source of embarrassment to the Republicans, but I'd like to get the Democratic view on this uh, man and his works. Uh, Senator Mahoney, is it your opinion that any Republican congressional candidate who overtly or covertly solicits and receives the support of the junior senator from Wisconsin in the next election will be harmed or would be benefited by the efforts of the senator? Well, my personal feeling is that uh, Senator McCarthy's support would be the kiss of death. Why do you say that, Senator? Because for any Republican candidate running in a district that is not so rock-ribbed Republican, it couldn't be lost. I say that because uh, I believe that most of the thinking Republicans, I believe that the Eisenhower Republicans, uh, feel that Senator McCarthy has tried to split his own party, has tried to put himself above his president, has tried to be a one-man Republican Party, and uh, I think has tried to make over the Republican Party in his own image. Mr. Rayhorn, you uh, seem to have a question there. Senator Ferguson, speaking of support, uh, do you intend to invite the support of the citizens for Eisenhower Group in your forthcoming campaign? Well, I think that the citizens will be in Michigan as they're going to be in all of the states. Well, I understand and, uh, that you have to invite their support. They're supporting about 100 uh, candidates at the present time. Do you intend to well, invite their I, support? Well, I didn't know that any particular uh, invitation was necessary. I understood that the citizens for Eisenhower were formed for the purpose of trying to get people to vote for the candidates that would help to carry out the Eisenhower program. Now, as one of the people in the Senate that is responsible for the Eisenhower program, one who is, uh, has helped to make it up, and one who meets weekly and more often to help to carry it out, and uh, who is in a way responsible for uh, coordinating it with the leader in the, uh, with the floor leader, I, uh, I never thought that would be necessary to request, I, I tell you frankly. Uh, uh, Senator Ferguson, there's yeah, been Mr. a great... Hill. There's been a great deal of talk about 
Democratic backing of President Eisenhower's program. <clears throat> Do you have any comments with respect to whether the president will need a Republican as distinguished from a Democratic majority in both houses after the November election? Well, the, the president in his last press conference... The 1954 elections were held on November 2nd. Republicans would lose both the House and Senate, a direct result of anti-McCarthy backlash. The elections caused a divided government that continued to the end of Eisenhower's presidency. Republicans wouldn't retake the Senate until 1980 and the House until 1994. I grew up listening to the Lux Radio yeah, Theater, yeah. and uh, was it a really uh, star-studded show, wasn't it? I it mean, was, yes. There... You see, the um, agency, the J. Walter Thompson Company, that produced the show for Chase and Sanborn, had a good in with the motion picture studios, particularly MGM. And at that time, the motion picture studios, Mr. Golden Mary, 20th Century, and Universal, all of them, had contract players. They had uh, stars, or young stars, particularly under contract. Mm -hmm. And they would get them to come on the radio show, you see, for not a great deal of money. Because it was really part of their contract to do that. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other big stars, they just paid. and It was quite a thing to be on the show. But they got many of their players from the studios because the studios said, do it. Then, when the contract system ended, which it practically is gone now, there's no studio, has a lot of people under contract performers. That ended, and there was just no more available talent. Then they'd say, okay, pay me my full price, you yeah. see. At Network Radio's height, no dramatic show was more popular than CBS's Lux Radio Theater. Between 1936 and 54, it never finished lower than eighth in the ratings, and it was radio's top show between 1947 and 52. Ken Carpenter announced radio's best supporting talent, like Paula Winslow, worked opposite Hollywood's biggest stars. Surprisingly, yeah, well, you must Very have done nice. uh, a number of Lux Radio Theater broadcasts uh, oh, yes. over the years. A lot of them. And I understand that many times the big movie stars who would come in to perform on the show along with the whole cast of radio people, the movie stars were very uncomfortable and really nervous about doing oh, that. Oh, they, sort of they were terribly nervous, mm -hmm. some of them, terribly. I did a show one time with Rex Harrison, you know, this mm -hmm. marvelous, elegant man who was so experienced. I was just, literally, the paper just shaking, just, <laughs> just shaking. Yes, yeah, so many of them were very good. Well, some of the people were absolutely marvelous visually, mm -hmm. but some of them were not stage trained mm -hmm. and were uncomfortable when they had only the voice to work with. Now that's understandable. And they were probably uh, unaccustomed to facing a studio audience of two or three hundred people. Well, looking at that and reading lines mm -hmm. into a metal thing hanging down <laughs> and on the screen they were marvelous and so effective and uh, it, I can understand that. It was a very mechanical kind of thing. You mm -hmm. had to learn how to use that mic and we all got used to that. The ones who started, as you can understand, it's like a child learning. 
from scratch,、mm -hmm. and so it never bothered us. Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern was appointment radio, and CBS built the rest of its powerhouse Monday schedule around Lux. It helped shows like My Friend Irma, Inner Sanctum, Screen Guild, and Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts reach new heights. It was also radio's most rehearsed show. All the players were expected to be available for an entire week leading up to the live Monday broadcast. John Gibson, better known as Ethelbert on Crime Photographer, remembered the schedule. Some of those、uh, were such wonderful plays, and we had wonderful casts. We worked with wonderful people, and、uh, we had such a thrill playing these in a big theater with an audience. Yeah, it was really a lavish production. You have a full orchestra, you have、yes. a live audience, and you have all top names playing. It、yes. was always three or four leading roles,、uh, either Broadway or Hollywood actors.、That's、How long、right. would you rehearse for a show like that? Well, as I recall, we would take several days. I remember the original Lux Radio Theater, before acting became unionized, took a whole week to prepare an hour broadcast. Vincent Price, one of Hollywood's only stars contractually allowed to do as much radio as he wanted, remembered working the show. It was really extraordinary. Cecil B. DeMille was the host. And、uh, William Keeley and different people—you know—I mean, very distinguished directors. The fact that all of the money went to the Actors' Fund was very impressive. Besides, I suppose it had one of the biggest listening audiences of all time. And these dramas were rehearsed like plays. You know, you rehearsed a full week. A TV version of Lux premiered in 1950. How long were you associated with the Lux Radio Theater? Well, I'm trying to think. Probably,、uh, well, I started in, in about 1943, I think,、mm -hmm. and was with it until its demise when they went to the Lux Video Theater.、Yeah. Then moved over to the television end of it and did the Lux Video、mm -hmm. Theater. That was quite an experience. The early days of television were like the early days of radio to a certain extent. In other words, you tried、uh -huh. things. You know, everybody was learning. The great thing, the thing that I enjoyed, and it was tough, but it was all live. Television was done completely live in those days. We did the kinescope for the、uh, repeat out here, but the、uh, the show itself, the hour video theater, was done completely live. Dramatic show, tough on actors. I don't know how they did it because learning their moves, not only their lines and their acting, but their moves where they had to be and changing clothes behind sets, you know, dressers dressing them. It was a very、uh, difficult thing to do. But once you did it, you had a great sense of accomplishment that you could do it. They must have been out of breath running from one set to the next. They were at times. You know? Oh、no、yes,、cut. yes,、yeah. yes. You bet you the stage manager just grabbed and hauled over <laughs> the next set. That's quite a sight. <laughs> Near the end of the radio run, it was estimated Lux had gone through more than fifty thousand pages of script, five hundred stars, fifteen hundred supporting players, twenty thousand music cues, and twenty thousand sound effects. In 1954, Lux was still rated fifth overall with a 6.2. But even radio's most famous dramatic show wasn't immune to the times. Towards the end of the season, it was announced that CBS and Lux would be cutting ties in June. All that was left was to put a bow on one of the most successful shows in radio history.
Lux presents Hollywood. Lieber Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, brings you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Dan Daly and Dorothy McGuire in A Blueprint for Murder. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Irving Cummings. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight's play, A Blueprint for Murder, is a spine-tingling mystery. The thrilling drama of a romance which was overshadowed by the suspicion of murder. It's the quandary of a young man who suspects that the lovely young widow of his brother may be a diabolical poisoner. And as our stars, we have popular Dan Daly and Dorothy McGuire, creating two unusual roles in this suspenseful motion picture from 20th Century Fox. But for a moment, let's listen to Ken Carpenter. They say it's springtime that'll turn a young man's fancy to uh, thoughts of you-know-what. But I know that a really feminine-looking gal can turn a man's fancy and his head any time of the year. And there's nothing more feminine than sheer, lovely nylon stockings. And, of course, no care but Lux Flakes care for them. 96% of stocking manufacturers recommend Lux Flakes. It pays you to follow their advice, because Lux Flakes care can actually double the wear you get from every pair. So always give your nylons gentle Lux Flakes care. And uh, when you're picking up Lux Flakes at the market... Be sure to get the new Lux, too, Lux Liquid Detergent. It's made just for the dishes job. Even though the carpenters have been using Lux Liquid for months now, I still can't get over how quickly it floats grease off plates and glasses. And so little will do so much. Just a teaspoonful does a dishpan full. While it's rough on grease, Lux Liquid is gentle on your hands. Every bit as mild as you'd expect a Lux product to be. The can it comes in is special, too. It has a wonderful new dripless spout that makes it almost impossible for anyone, including me, to mess up the sides of the can. Yes, Lux Liquid is the next best thing to a dishwashing machine, as good for dishes as Lux Flakes are for nylons. If you don't agree, both are all we say. Lever Brothers will give you back whatever you paid for them. Now, Act One of A Blueprint for Murder, starring Dan Daly as Cam... And Dorothy McGuire as Lynn Cameron. The telegram was waiting for me in New Orleans. The telegram from Lynn. I took the next plane back and rushed to the hospital. Late that afternoon, the doctor was able to give us some real encouragement. And so I think our worries are over, Mr. Cameron. But she was a mighty sick little girl. You still don't know what was wrong? Not for sure. The tetany test was negative. Tetany? Those muscular spasms she was having, they're quite characteristic. Well, I'm sure she'll have quite a comfortable night. I understand you're the child's uncle, is that right? Yes, her father's dead, and my brother. I'm very attached to both children and their stepmother. Well, Mrs. Cameron's had quite an ordeal. Why not uh, take her home? We uh, will have a special nurse on duty, and if anything at all yes, comes up... I'll, I'll try and get her to leave now. Oh, I wouldn't think of leaving here if it weren't for Doug. Oh, poor little boy. He doesn't know what to make of all this. I'll phone him and tell him I'm coming. There's a booth down the corridor. Cam, 
Now that you're here, how about spending a few days with us? I'd really like to, Lynn, but I should get back tomorrow. We're opening a new field in Venezuela. <laughs> you're always roaming all over the world. Did it ever occur to you that we might like to see you once in a while? It's so important to the children, especially Doug. He's never quite got over Bill's death. And he's so fond of you. Let me see what I can do. Maybe I can stay over a few days. Oh, I wish you would. Well, here's your phone booth. I'll look up a public stenographer. I got some letters and a couple of telegrams to get off. I'll meet you at the house. Wonderful. We'll expect you for dinner. And, Cam, thanks for everything. Gosh, Lynn, do I have to go to bed? Can't we play just one more game? It's way past your bedtime, Doug, and tomorrow's school. But Uncle Kim's only going to be here for a few days. And we're going to have fun for those few days, too. How about the ice show tomorrow? Oh, boy. Gee, I wish Polly could go, too. It was awful last night, Uncle Kim. The way she kept yelling, don't touch my feet. Yes, uh, I know, but I think we should try and get that out of our minds, Doug. Dad was just like that when he died. Just like that? Well, I'm afraid Doug's letting his imagination run away with him. But he was. All stiff and funny, too. Just just the same as Polly. Is that right? Well, there was some similarity, I suppose. But the doctors all agreed that Bill had virus encephalitis. Anyway, there must be a lot of things with the same symptoms. Yes, I suppose so. Have you told Uncle Cam about your baseball team, Doug? Boy, have we got a team. I knocked two home runs last week. Uh, if we were up in Boston, Slugger, we could see the Red Sox play. Say, how about letting Doug spend the summer with me? Oh, please, Lynn, please. Well, why not? Sounds wonderful. Oh, boy. Now, let's see. I've still got the sailboat out in the Cape. I know to take care of the weekends, and during the week... We... Lynn took us up to Lake George last summer, and I learned a lot about boats, Uncle Kim. Seems to me Lynn's been mighty good to you. She sure has. Well, good night, Uncle Kim. Good night, Doug. Good night, Lynn. Sleep well, dear. And just call if there's anything you want. I will. See you in the morning, Uncle Cam. You've been wonderful. The way you're bringing up those kids. They're nice kids. It hasn't been hard. When their mother died, I thought no one would ever be able to take her place. They really love you, Lynn. I don't see how they can help it. I always thought Bill was a lucky man. Now I'm beginning to realize just how... Oh, excuse me. Hello? Yes. Yes, we'll be right there. Cam, that was Dr. Stevenson at the hospital. Polly? He told us to come right over. She's had a relapse. Cam! Well, well, when did you hit town? Hello, Fred. Well, come in. Hey, Maggie, look who's here. Oh, this is wonderful. We haven't seen you in ages. Had your breakfast? Fred, uh, I've got bad news. I wouldn't be here at this hour except... It's Polly, Fred. Polly's dead. Dead? Cam, full of all the wonderful surprises. Take it easy, honey. Some terrible news. Little Polly Cameron. She's dead. She's what? I just can't believe it. Accident? No, no, she took sick. When, Cam, when? Early this morning at the hospital. Oh, what a tragedy. And Lynn and poor little Doug, how's he taking it? Well, they're both under sedatives. Your breakfast, please go ahead. You'll have some coffee anyway. I'll get another cup. I have no right to barge in like this, and I should have phoned you first. That's a fine way to talk to an old friend. Fred, you're still handling the estate, aren't you? Yes, yes, of course. 
Cam, what was wrong with Polly? Well, the doctor seemed rather uncertain. He doesn't know? Sometimes it's hard to tell, I suppose, but there's one thing about it that bothers me. Well? Apparently, Polly had the same sort of convulsions that Bill had before he died. Cam, are you sure of that? I'm not sure of anything. I only know that Polly kept screaming, don't touch my feet. That's... It's very curious. I don't see anything curious about it at all. It's, it's just that I'm afraid there might be something hereditary in all this and that it could hit Doug, too. Cam, you weren't here when Bill died, were you? No. Well, what did the doctors tell you he died from? Virus encephalitis. Sort of a sleeping sickness. Yet in Polly's case, they don't know? Somehow back in my mind, that don't touch my feet rings a bell. Maggie, please. She still writes for those pulp magazines. You know what an imagination she is. This has nothing to do with imagination. This was research I did at a medical library a couple of years ago. I had an idea for a story, and That's I... what I thought, a story. Well, maybe you're right. Forget it. Well, if there's something on your mind, say it. Well, I was looking up a murder case. The victim also had convulsions and kept screaming, don't touch my hand. So? He died of strychnine poisoning. Oh, Maggie, for heaven's sake, how can you even suggest such a thing? I only mean there's a, well, a similarity. You know nothing about what's happened, nothing. Maggie, don't you think the doctors would have recognized strychnine? Well, I don't know. They didn't in the case I looked up, and they apparently don't know what killed Polly. Let's see what the encyclopedia says about convulsions. Why do you always have to dramatize everything? You're really going off the deep end, Maggie. Well, look it up if you want to. She sees a man take a pocket knife to sharpen a pencil, and right away she starts building up a murder case. Well, don't both of you jump on me. I only mentioned it as something that should be looked into. Anyway, here it is in the encyclopedia. Let me see it. Well, they, they list eight causes. Tetanus. Only tetanus would have required a cut. Obviously, it wasn't rabies. Epilepsy? There's no history of it in the family. With all these others, like a brain tumor, there would have been earlier indications. All except one. Well? Read it. Poisons, especially the alkaloids such as strychnine. That doesn't prove anything. No, of course not. Uh, I'd like to use your phone. I'd like to call Dr. Stevenson. And so we... Well, we thought of the possibility of strychnine, Doctor. You're serious about this, Mrs. Sergeant? I don't mean to be rude, Doctor, but you do admit you don't know what that child died from. Is this your idea, too, Mr. Cameron? I haven't any ideas, Doctor, but you told me it wasn't tetany, and yet that's what you put on the death certificate. Because that's what we were treating the patient for. She responded to the calcium, so we continued it. As a matter of fact, I suggested an autopsy. Oh? Lynn couldn't stand the idea. I agreed, and nothing could be gained by it. Mrs. Sergeant... Just how do you think the child got the poison? I don't know, of course, but I don't see how it could have been accidental. I hope you realize what you're saying. Meanwhile, Mr. Cameron, I'm afraid I don't want any part of all this. I'm sorry I ever mentioned it. Come on, Cam, let's go. Thank you for seeing us. You're quite welcome, Mr. Cameron. Who could have done it, Maggie? Who? Oh, several people. For instance? For instance, Lynn. Good day, Dr. Stevenson. Maggie, what's got into you making a crazy crack like that about Lynn? Now, doggone it, I'm getting mad. I only said it was possible she could have done it, and it is. And you've got her all wrong. She certainly made Bill a good wife. He was very happy with her. Do you plan to stay on? Till the end of the week. Just three or four days, huh? Can I drive you anywhere? No, no thanks. Think it over, Cam. 
It sounds ridiculous, I know. But is it? Say hello to Fred. I'll, I'll see you both in a day or two. I was with Lynn most of the next few days. More and more, I realized what a wonderful person she was. Her warmth and affection for Doug helped so much to soften the blow of his sister's death. Never did Maggie's suspicions seem more fantastic than now. Must you really leave tomorrow, Cam? I've stretched it as long as I could, Lynn. But I'll be back as soon as I can. You can rely on that. I don't know what I would have done without... Yes, Anna? It's the phone, ma'am, for Mr. Cameron. It's Mr. Sergeant. Tell him I'll call him back later, Anna. No, no, no. Go on. I'll run upstairs and see if Doug's asleep. I'll take it in the study, Anna. Yes, sir. Am I just wanted to know if you're still leaving in the morning. Yes, of course. Why? Well, I... I hesitate to talk about it on the phone. It's about your brother Bill's estate. Well? Under the terms of his will, Lynn shares in trust. She receives only the interest unless... Well, unless what? Now, I don't want you to think we're jumping at conclusions, Cam. We're not. It's just that I... Unless what? Unless both children were to die. Both Polly and Doug. Fred, what the devil are you trying to say? Well, it could provide a motive. I'm not amazed at you. I know how all this must sound, Cam, but I think you ought to stay over another day so we can talk it over. All right. All right, I'll see you in the morning. Anything wrong? Wrong? Oh, no, no. Fred just called to say goodbye. Oh, I hate that word. I told him he was being premature, and I've decided to stay a day or two longer. That is, if it's all right with you. You know it is. Was Doug all right? Oh, yes, thank goodness. I'm worried about him. He doesn't look at all well. It's been the same for him as for the rest of us. Mm. Such a terrible shock. No, but Doug hasn't been looking well for weeks. I'm thinking of taking him out of school camp, maybe a trip to Europe. Why? Well, he needs a change. Everything here only reminds him of his father and Polly. And it would be good for me, too. How long would you be away? Oh, I don't know. Maybe a year or so. That long? Hmm. Might be very good for him. Visiting all the little out-of-the-way places and just taking it easy. I'm not worried about his schoolwork. He's such a bright boy. We could take some sort of study schedule with us. And that way... No point in getting excited about it, Cam. We're just talking about it among ourselves. But I can't close my eyes to the fact that Lynn did have a motive. I don't care how it adds up. You'll never convince me that Lynn is capable of murder. Bill left a lot of money, Cam. Almost a million dollars. And now you tell us she's thinking of taking Doug abroad. Yes, to those out-of-the-way places in Europe. Well, what do you want me to do? Be objective, that's all. Cam, I've gone through every book on poison cases I can find. There have been plenty of women who were poison murderers. Stop it, Maggie. Please. Madeline Smith, Florence Maybrick, Lydia Trueblood, dozens of others. Many of them were young, beautiful, intelligent, and cultured. You still refuse to answer a very simple question. If it was strychnine that killed Polly, why didn't the doctors recognize it? Because they weren't looking for it. Here's the dope on lots of famous poison cases. Not in one instance did a doctor call the turn based on medical diagnosis. You just can't dismiss it as impossible, that's all. At least I can't. And here's something else you might look over. This happened in Philadelphia. More than a hundred people killed by arsenic before even one of the cases was suspected. 
Yet that's the only case reported in Philadelphia in the last 20 years. All right. How do they account for it? Because there are so many diseases, apparently, that simulate poison symptoms. And the idea of murder seems so utterly incredible to the doctors that it doesn't even enter their minds. Don't think I'm sold on this theory, Cam, because I am not. Too many things don't make sense. If Lynn were guilty, for example, she'd have had Polly's body cremated. Lynn did want Polly cremated. I talked her out of it. Bill wouldn't have wanted it. I see. I, I, I didn't know. Then Polly could have been poisoned. Cam, we... we just can't dismiss this lightly. Well, I can and I will. And if Doug should also die, Cam, then what? Doug? Would you ever be able to forgive yourself? You're a lawyer. What do you suggest? I'm afraid there's only one thing to do. Talk to the police. Get a court order for an autopsy. All right. Let's get it over with. Cam? Aren't you coming in? Dinner's ready. Hmm? Oh, oh. What's the matter with you? You've been staring out of that window for half an hour. Ever since you got that phone call. Where's Doug? I told you. He's having dinner at his friends down the street. Lynn, uh, I've got to talk to you. Well, can't it wait until after dinner? No, it can't wait any longer. Lynn, I don't know how to begin. That phone call before, it, it was about Polly. Polly was poisoned. Poisoned? Yes. Oh, why, it just couldn't be. Cam, there must be some mistake. I'm afraid not. But how? How could it have happened? The police think it was intentional. Police? Yes, it was their medical examiner who performed the autopsy. They want you and the servants down for questioning tomorrow morning. Oh, but this is impossible. It doesn't make any sense. The police, what, what gave them the idea of performing an autopsy? Lynn, you know Dr. Stevenson wasn't certain what caused Polly's death. No. Well, uh, there was a reason for thinking it, it could have been strychnine. The symptoms are almost identical. And you knew about this, and you didn't even mention it to me. I didn't think they'd find anything wrong. There was no purpose in upsetting you. I, I know it's miserable being dragged down to the police for a lot of oh, stupid well, questions. Oh, well, that can't be helped, but there's one fact we can't get away from. If Polly was poisoned, then somebody did it. And it's up to us to find that somebody. Yes, ma'am. I'll need your help more than ever now. I'll be here. Thank you. Before we continue with Act Two of A Blueprint for Murder, let's hear from Francis Scully. Lux would run one more season moving to NBC, where it was still a top four show. The Lux Video Theater also shifted to NBC. It ran until 1957 before changing formats and bringing in Rosemary Clooney to star. In its final season in 1959, the show became the Lux Playhouse before being canceled. So I'm told. Doesn't Elizabeth Taylor play the role of the spoiled, willful girl they both love? That's right, Ken, in the most romantic performance of her career. The picture is in a delightfully carefree mood, and the background swiftly changes from Switzerland to Paris and the Riviera. Every Christmas, Lux would put on uh, Miracle on 34th Street. Generally, the same people would get called back each year to play the same parts that they'd played. And I don't know if you remember the picture or the story, which was 
you know, it's on all the time. In order to prove that he was actually Santa Claus, there was a trial. The plaintiff's attorney said, we can prove that he's really Santa Claus by all the mail he gets that's directed to Santa Claus. So they called the guy from the post office to bring in the mail, and I played the guy with the truck with all the mail, and the judge says, put it up here on my desk. And I say, yeah, but Your Honor, there's bags and bags and bags of it out there. He says, bring it in. I said, okay, Your Honor, through hail, through snow, through sleet, through we deliver. So this particular mail guy that I played had like in one small, in like in about 15 minutes, he had three different entrances. Came in, did a few lines, went out, came in, did a few lines again, and came back and did a few lines again. Now on Lux, I don't remember exactly, but they did an all, they rehearsed more with Lux than any other show. Lux was on Monday night, and they would have a show, a rehearsal like maybe on a Tuesday, and they would rehearse again Thursday, and then they would rehearse, I believe Friday, and then Sunday, Sunday. you'd go in there Sunday and rehearse most of the day, and then do a dress rehearsal with the audience. Then Monday you come in, you do another dress rehearsal with an audience, and now you do the show. Now that's four times now that you've, in the last two days, you've done it, right? Well, I was doing this guy for the third or fourth or fifth year, I don't know, and I got a call to do what they used to call in those days an audition, which was a pilot for a new show called Father Knows Best with a guy by the name of Bob Young. And I played his sidekick, Hector Smith. This was the audition platter that they were making. And they were doing it at 8 o'clock at night, and Lux went off the air at 8. I think Lux was on from 7 to 8. Now, Fred Mackay was the director of Lux, of this particular show. On Lux, they had so many ad-libs that they would have everybody that wasn't on the mic stand over on the side by another mic, and they would cue oh, the yeah, ad libs, yeah, yeah, you know, when it was a drawing room that comedy, that and the people would blab that. Well, I never heard that. I can up to me, that, but that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you weren't on mic, you had to get over there, and they had Lou Merrill or Eddie Marr or somebody running the ad libs. Eddie Marr. For which he got an extra five dollars. Five dollars. <laughs> okay. So I said to Fred McKay, I said, "Is it okay with you after I finish my last thing?" Can you, will you excuse me from the ad-libs until the end of the show so I can run over there? And he said, yes. So that was that. So now we go through all those rehearsals and all the dress rehearsals with all the audiences, and now we're doing the show. And I did the first scene, and I did the second scene, and I don't know how to make this most dramatic, but anyhow, I finally finished and I left. And I ran over, and did the audition for Father Knows Best, and went home, and the following Wednesday, I'm over at KHJ doing California Caravan, and Willie Waterman comes in, and we're sitting there marking our scripts, and Willie says, uh, what happened to you the other day? I says, what? He says, on Lux, you know, last month, what happened? I says, what do you mean, what happened? He says, what happened there when you weren't there, when you left? I says, what are you talking about? He says, you don't know? I says, know what? He says, you weren't there for your last scene. <laughs> I said, I didn't believe him. I said, you, you, this can't be true. He says, no, you... Well, I started getting sick. And I said, what happened? He said, Gil Stratton was standing there and you didn't show up. So he walked up to the mic and he read your lines. 
Well, geez, I could hardly wait to get through with this California caravan. And I ran up to J. Walter Thompson office, which was over then Thrifty Drugstore. And I wanted to see Fred Mackay, and uh, he wasn't in. So I talked to his secretary. I said, is it true? She said, yeah. I said, oh, my God. So anyhow, I finally got to talk to Fred Mackay, and I said, you know, I can't believe this. I was sure I was through in the business. I figured that's the end of me, and uh, I'll never work again. I finally talked to Fred, and he says, you know, in New York, nobody knew about it. Nobody knew what happened. <laughs> they didn't know it at all. And it worked out just fine, and Gil Stratton did the thing and everything. And the kicker to the story is that the following week, Fred Mackay used me again on the next show, which was wonderful because I'd have died. <laughs>
begged and begged and begged for months, trying to get sponsorship. They even suggested tailoring their commercials in different than usual style. But Jim didn't feel that because of his screen image that it would be fair to, and this in all modesty, for him to be sponsored by a cigarette. I've forgotten there was another advertiser wanted very much to sponsor the show. But again, Jim and uh, also MCA, which owned the show, said no. Even with James Stewart leading the cast and Jack Johnstone directing, without a national sponsor, cancellation was around the corner for the six-shooter. Unlike with CBS, it was uncommon for NBC to sustain shows for long. Stewart had turned down sponsorship from Liggett and Myers Tobacco. The six-shooter would go off the air after the June 24, 1954 episode. 39 shows were produced. Parley Bear played parts in many episodes. I know Jack Johnstone. He never went in the booth. He directed as they did 400 years ago. He'd put earphones on at his own booth and stood right in the studio with you, which most of us found extremely annoying. He was a very affable man, but I said, gosh, your credit should read directed and conducted by, because he, <laughs> he'd wave and point and whatnot, and he insisted on certain weird techniques that after a while you rebelled at, but if you wanted to work, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> the next year, Bayer would work with Johnstone on CBS's Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. You were part of a select group of actors, I think, who appeared in virtually all of the CBS programs in the 1950s. CBS was the network that hung on the longest to radio. dramatic shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the workshop and escape and so Yes, like that. and then do you Suspense. remember Armour Star Theater on Saturday morning? Mm -hmm. you, I'm sure, like so many of the other actors out here, we're doubling on some of the shows, and oh, yes. we're doing more than one show in a day. I just say you hadn't really arrived until you had a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I think that radio is the ideal medium for a performer, because if 12 million people were listening, you were giving 12 million performances. It's too bad that it had to go, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. <laughs> Finale, Ponsett falls in love with Myra Barker. He proposes, but at the conclusion they realize married life is impossible, so long as Ponsett still has wrongs to right and people to save. In the end, Britt rides off into the sunset. Britt? Hold up a minute, Britt. Hmm? Oh. Oh, good morning, Jazz. Whoa, Scar. Whoa, whoa. Uh, would you mind stepping into the office a minute? I'd like to talk to you. Well, I, I uh... Don't I take long. No, all right, Jess. Easy, boy. <clears throat> Sit down, Britt. No, I'm kind of restless today, Jess. I... Thanks, anyway. <laughs> you sure have a fiddle foot, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And you're on your way out of town, huh? Yeah. What about Myra? Uh, she's a fine girl, Jess. Really a fine girl. Mm-hmm. Britt, you're leaving on account of Sheriff Jennings over to Eagle Falls sent for you. Ain't that your reason? Mm, you might say so, in a way. Well, now, I don't want you to think that I meant to eavesdrop last night when you was talking to Myra, but 
Somehow Zoe forgot to shut the parlor window, and uh, we just couldn't help hearing a certain amount of what she said. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Well, it ain't true what Myra told you. Leastways, the part about Sheriff Jennings sending for you, that ain't true. The fellow from Eagle Falls didn't even mention your name. Jennings ain't asked for your help, Britt. Yeah. Yeah, I know, Judge. Huh? Well, you see, I ran into Bide Prescott three, four weeks ago, and, uh, well, there's no reason for anybody to be going after him now. Well, if you knew that, if you knew you didn't have to leave Willow Fork, why in the name of common sense didn't you say so to Myra? Oh, I figured she had her reasons for making up that story about Sheriff Jennings. I I figured she was trying to turn me down without hurting my feelings. Oh, Britt, she didn't want to turn you down. She was just trying to make sure you wouldn't feel you'd, you'd made a mistake if you married her. No, she couldn't really care for me very much, Jess. Then why did she spend all night crying her eyes out? And why was Zoe up till all hours commiserating with her? Well, thanks for telling me that, Jess. Then you ain't leaving. Well, I'm leaving. And I'm real proud to know that Myra is somewhat fond of me. Oh, Britt, if you love her and she loves you... Oh, it's... It's enough that she cried over me for one night, Jess. You know, I... I remember when I was a kid... My pa was like me in a lot of ways. Always on the move, always off somewhere, getting a new start, taking a new job, hunting a new frontier. He loved my ma and she loved him, but she spent a lot of nights crying. A lot of nights. I just wouldn't want that to happen tomorrow. There's no reason it should. Yeah. Yes. Yes, there is. When she was telling me that story about Sheriff Jennings wanting me to come over to Eagle Falls, I I looked at myself real hard, and I knew that if it had been true, if Sheriff Jennings really had sent for me, well, it had been pretty hard for me to turn him down. Even for Myra's sake, it had been pretty hard. And someday I reckon I wouldn't be able to turn him down or anybody else like him, and... Myra would spend another night crying, you see. One of these days you'll change, Britt. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Well, can I tell Myra that you might come back to Willow Fork? No, Jess, I don't think you better. I... Of course, if I do come back and she's still... Well, maybe we just better wait and see what happens. So long, Britt. Good luck. Thanks, Jess. I'll probably be seeing you again for too long. Let's go, Scar. program in the current series of The Six Shooter, a transcribed NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is written by Frank Burt and is based on a character created by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Virginia Gregg, who played Myra, 
D.J. Thompson, Howard McNear, and Parley Bear. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. It's been good to be with you with the six-shooter each week, and I hope that sometime, somehow, we can do it again. This is John Wall speaking. Hear McDonald Carey and Jason and the Golden Fleece tonight on the NBC Radio Network. Fortunately for radio fans, the entirety of the Six Shooters one season survives. For more info, tune into Breaking Walls episode 122. I saw you on the telly the other day. I was sitting down to eat lunch, and I put on Twilight Zone, and there was an episode, maybe oh, yeah. you folks remember, of the two astronauts who land, the one dies, and the living astronaut is Roddy McDowell, and he's terrified to go out of the capsule, and his friend who's died has told him, no, no, there'll be people just like us. It'll be okay. So he goes out, and by golly, they are people. They, they do look just like us, and the leader of this group is played by Vic. Wearing an adorable little toga. A little toga. A very short one, as a matter of fact. Did I tell you what happened on that? This uh, spacecraft has crashed. And I crawl into the spacecraft to examine the survivor. And I have to lift my legs very high uh -huh. to get over the edge of this spacecraft. And you're wearing a toga. And we had to do that four or five times. And I finally did it holding the skirt down as I did it. It looked rather nice, I think, uh -huh. as I did it. Rather graceful, but... Otherwise, the audience might have gotten a glimpse of your Twilight Zone. <laughs> oh, come on, folks, it wasn't that good. You're right, <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. 20, 20. I thought you were going into a commercial. Now, let's go into a commercial. Now, we're dealing with a professional here. He knows what's going on. Well, that brings our six-month look at 1954 to a close. Jack Benny again had radio's highest-rated show the following season. It would ultimately be his swan song. Benny's last new radio episode aired in May of 1955. Joseph McCarthy would finally be censured by the Senate in December. He never recovered from that political storm and died three years later, ravaged by disease and addiction, at the age of 48. Although in some ways the Red Scare ended in 1954, the Cold War was just reaching its height. But fears of nuclear bombers were only half the reason people were looking up. It's time we focused on the other. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of its 75th anniversary, we examine our place in the universe with the utterance of a single word. Roswell. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, The Complete Escape and Suspense Logs by Keith Scott, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, Life Magazine, Newsweek, 
and radio guide. On the interview front, Parley Bear, Ken Carpenter, Elliot Lewis, and Paula Winslow spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Herb Ellis, Virginia Gregg, Jack Johnstone, Elliot Lewis, and Herb Vigran spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. John Gibson, Elliot Lewis, Vincent Price, and Arnold Stang spoke to Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. John Daner and Vic Perrin spoke with Neil Ross at KMPC. Dennis Day spoke with John Dunning for 71 KNUS. Morton Fine was with Dan Hafley. Orson Wells with Johnny Carson. Jimmy Stewart with Larry King. And Jack Benny spoke with CBS. Selected music featured in today's episode was Living Without You and Too Much Between Us by George Winston, The Last Rose of Summer by Tom Waits, and Seance on a Wet Afternoon by John Barry. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 129 will examine how radio and the flying saucer craze converged. We'll listen to shows, hear news clips, and blast off into outer space. This episode will be available beginning July 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until July 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 128. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.